Tony explains Scott's actual off. Uh, oops, I went into wrestling offense rather than uh, legal offense. <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by a man who showers at least slightly more often than Bunkhouse Buck, Alec Bridgen. I want to say it's a compliment, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> I'm like 97% sure. I did say more often. I that's, did add That's like, true, yes. Tonight, we are taking a look at Spring Stampede 1997. These men do solemnly swear to kick, fight, punch, stomp, and flatten anybody who gets in their way. What a weird list that is. Yeah, right? We get a specific move, a generalization, a specific move, a specific move, and an effect rather than a move. Well, there's an ODQ match, so maybe they can use an actual steamroller in this. That, that's that's entirely possible, yeah. Yeah, it's the 90s. I guess maybe fight and flatten cover things like suplexes, power bombs, and other things you would expect to see on a yeah. wrestling show. I mean, if, if Vader was on this show, I believe flatten, personally. <laughs> that's but true. But he's not, sadly. That is true. Notably, the men on the poster for this event are the then-current Four Horsemen, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Mongo McMichael, and Chris Benoit. But Ric Flair and Arn Anderson don't have matches tonight, so they've broken their oath to fight, haven't they? A little bit, yeah. I, I guess maybe nobody got in their way, so they didn't have to. Huh? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a clause, I guess. Yeah. Or, or maybe it was in the parking lot. They beat some guy up when he took their space. I mean, it's Ric Flair, so that's very possible, yes. <laughs> they couldn't identify the man other than he was blonde and yelled woo all the time. Could be <laughs> anyone, police say. Spring Stampede 1997 was held on April 6, 1997, at the Tupelo Coliseum in Tupelo, Mississippi, in front of a sold-out crowd of 8,356 fans, of which 7,428 paid. The Tupelo Coliseum, now the Bancorp South Arena, because apparently sports complex names must now always be incredibly boring, is listed as holding up to 10,000 people but about 8,000 for sports events, so that sold out seems pretty legit. Yeah, okay, it could be. Spring Stampede 1997 also earned 145,000 pay-per-view buys, about 25,000 more than last year. That is on the lower end of WCW's 1997 numbers. In fact, the only WCW show that got a lower number in 97 was NWO Sold Out in January, which at 120,000 still got at least three times as many buys as it deserved. Yeah, way, way more than that, yes. (laughs) Having taken a couple of years off, Spring Stampede returns to a drastically changed company, having entirely skipped the WCW Hulkamania era and landed plop in the middle of the NWO angle. Yeah. How much is that going to affect the atmosphere of the show itself? To find out, let's go to the ring. In WCW Spring Stampede, the streets will be clear when Diamond Dallas Page calls out Randy Savage. Don't forget to bring your little bim 
other villains of the NWO will take it to the mat with the Steiner Brothers. It's going to be the Steiner Brothers' revenge! Medusa says there'll be a new sheriff in town when she takes out Akira Hokuto for the WCW Women's World Title. Prince Iokeo will attempt to brand Lord Stephen a loser in a TV title match. Then all the gold is up for grabs when champion Dean Malenko I'm giving you an opportunity has a standoff with horseman Chris Benoit to show up and prove yourself for the WCW US title and in the final showdown the four corner match will have Lex Luger, the Giant and Harlem Heat gunning for a chance at bringing home the WCW world title from Hollywood Hogan the rumbling is WCW Spring Stampede It's clear early on that this show is going to be just as good or even better on theme than last year, as the opening video package features some nice cowboy movie-style music and footage of an old west town, with the logo of the show done as a wooden sign surrounded by barbed wire. There's even a dust cloud like would be kicked up by a stampede, and the announcer, of course, makes a ton of western puns and tries his best at a Texan accent. He definitely does, yes. <laughs> it was interesting him trying to pronounce Akira Hokuto in a Texan accent, right? I did notice that, yeah. <laughs> that poor guy, like, I'm trying to do a weird voice, and you're going to be Prince Iakea and Akira Hokuto. <laughs> Where's Steve Smith when I need him? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's really interesting to see that in the midst of Supposedly the more serious NWO era, WCW is honestly putting on one of its most fun-loving presentations yet. Yeah, it's true. That carries forward to the awesome stage set. Oh, yeah. Which features giant bullhorns, cactuses, wagon wheels, a covered wagon, and a complete Old West building set that even fires off fireworks in a pattern that makes it look like a gunfight's going on. (laughs) It is amazing. One of the best sets that WCW has ever done. And the designers clearly put a lot of love into that stage design. So kudos to them. The only downside for me is I'm always worried when there's pyro because there's so much there. Yes. I'm just waiting for the set to on fire. Yes, yes. A truly massive amount of fireworks go off from the rafters and ring as host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show alongside co-host the American Dream Dusty Rhodes and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Yes, we are in the Tony Bobby Dusty era. Or in gold or commentary, at least. Yes. No matter what happens in the show. It's a shame that since we skipped 96, I probably only get one show with this trio this series, though. Oh, yeah, that's true. Their desk is wonderful. Oh, yeah. Wood colors, a wooden sign with the same spring stampede logo emblazoned on it. It's just a good Western look that really fits the show theme. Mm -hmm. It's a shame the commentators didn't get dressed up in that style, too, though Heenan is at least wearing a bolo tie. Yeah, it's weird that he's the one that committed to it, not Dusty. Yeah, you'd think that... I I imagine the cowboy hat would have made the headset really awkward. Oh, yeah. Tony goes over the Four Corners tag match. That's going to be Booker T, Stevie Ray, Lex Luger, and the Giant. And they're fighting for the right to face world champ Hollywood Hogan. And he mentions our actual main event tonight, Diamond Dallas Page versus the Macho Man Randy Savage in a no-disqualification match. So that is a big change in the intervening couple of years since the last show in this series. DDP went from the opening match in 94, where he wasn't even featured in the intro video, to the main event and focus of the show in 1997. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah. we'd skip two years and suddenly the dude's main event material. <laughs> yeah. This is his big test show to sort of prove he can beat Yeah. Him. This is 
DDP's first ever shot at the main event, mm-hmm. which is yeah. amazing. Because his Battle Bowl match wasn't the main event. That's true. Tony also mentions the world tag title match, but he notes that there's been a few changes. The NWO's Scott Hall is not here, and the WCW Championship Committee has said that his partner, Kevin Nash, must defend the tag titles himself against the Steiner brothers. Tony says that Nash has said he'll do it, but he has demands that must be met. But he's not coming out to explain those demands, so Lee Marshall has been sent to the back to try to talk to him. Dusty says, one good man can't beat two good men, so this might be the crack in the NWO's armor. Heenan says the NWO is going to have to put up or shut up, and Nash will not be able to beat both Steiners. Tony says, it's time to go to the ring. So close. It's just taunting you. (laughs) So our first match is Ultimo Dragon, labeled Ultimate Dragon, versus Rey Mysterio Jr. The referee for this one is Mark Curtis, and Mike Tanay is joining the commentary team for this one. Rey Mysterio would challenge Prince Ikea unsuccessfully for the TV title at a recent show. Meanwhile, Ultimate Dragon is now out of the Cruiserweight ranks due to stuff that happened, so he's going for that title. Interestingly, there's a pre-taped bit on one of the go-home Nitros where Sonny Ono, in a backstage video, taunts Mysterio for challenging Dragon, even though Ono is not connected to Dragon here in the show at all. Even in the video package, it's not the two of them together, it's just Ono in the backstage doing that, so there's a Hmm. disconnect there in the story, for sure. Interesting. Ultimo Dragon wears bright blue today. That really pops. Mm -hmm. Tony calls him Ultimate Dragon, then experimentally corrects to Ultimo, but no one seems to bite, so he goes back to Ultimate. Yeah. The guy's worked for the company for like three quarters of a year at this point. They they should know his name. Yeah. What's funny is on a later show, I watched part of the clash that happens in August for another reason, Mm -hmm. and they made a video package where he actually explained his name. (laughs) Like he has to really explain to the audience and hopefully gets the commentators. (laughs) <laughs> explaining that he's Ultimo Dragon because he's the final student of Bruce Lee. Right. So he's the last dragon. Yes. Mysterio comes out in black and white with a half-black, half-white vest. Oh, he's joined the NWO. No, no, not really. But it is kind of funny that WCW didn't restrict that color scheme from use outside of the NWO angle. Yeah. Since it like starts having intense meaning when you see someone come out in black and white, you'd think they'd say, don't come out in black and white. Right, 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 yeah. Makes perfect sense, yeah. Dusty talks about this being Spring Stampede, where you used to gather all the hosses together, and the young colts got a chance to run with the big studs. Used to? There's only been one show before, and it didn't really have a theme of new wrestlers fighting established ones at all. Of all the matches on there, maybe Austin versus Muda? Yeah. That's the only one I can think of. Yeah, I mean, Flair and Ricky Steamboat were both on the first Darkade, so they're definitely not yeah. young versus old at this point. And yeah, Bunkhouse Buck was new when he was fighting Dustin Rhodes, but it's not like Dustin Rhodes had been around for a decade. Right, he wasn't fighting Dusty Rhodes. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> not yet, anyways. Maybe Dusty thinks of that as Dustin just carrying on his legacy, so he thought that qualified. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> Tanay correctly uses Ultimo. Dragon and Mysterio begin some really excellent mat wrestling, and Tanay says neither wants to be the first to make a big mistake, and that's why they aren't going high-flying yet. Dragon sends Mysterio neck-first to the ropes, as Tanay says Dragon, Mysterio, and Dean Malenko are the cream of the cruiserweight crop. Definitely agree with that. Oh yeah, for sure. Dragon snapmare and roll-up for two, 
and he lands sharp kicks before a slam for one, broken for a hold, then a leg scissors and short arm scissors for two and two again. The crowd is very behind Mysterio. Mm-hmm, yeah. Dragon tries using the ropes, but gets caught, forcing the break. Awesome Dragon crucifix backbreaker, and he powerbombs Mysterio, lifts him back up, and dumps him neck first on the ropes. Wow. Dusty calls him Delta Dragon because Dusty is Dusty. <laughs> sure, why not? Sleeper hold by Dragon as the commentators ask where Sonny Ono is. Tony thinks all his focus is on the upcoming women's title match, but Dusty's still surprised because Dragon brought, quote, Sonny Ono Bono, his success. <laughs> Dragon cuts off a Mysterio comeback with a running Liger bomb. Dragon tombstone pile driver for two, but he pulls Mysterio up. Mysterio spinning wheel kick, but Dragon recovers faster and he makes him pay with vicious kicks to Heenan's delight. Dragon suplex and more holds, including an elevated surfboard into a pin where it's actually a bit unclear who's down for two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The commentators even, I think, mentioned, oh, Dragon might have been the one that was getting counted out there because both his shoulders looked down too. They did, yeah. They go outside, but Mysterio reverses a barricade whip and runs back in to try and take a few moments to recover. But Dragon's right back for another sleeper, and Mysterio escapes and grabs his own sleeper to a massive roar from the crowd. Oh, yeah. I don't think a sleeper hold has gotten cheers that big since Roddy Piper was in the height of his popularity. That was amazing to hear. They definitely have built and built and built to Mysterio making a comeback here. Yeah. Dragon back suplex, but Mysterio backflips over him and spin wheel kicks him out through the ropes. Mysterio fakes a dive kicking a ringside camera by accident. (laughs) You can hear a thunk. (laughs) Yeah. And then springboards off the top rope to flip down onto Dragon once he thinks he's dodged. Awesome. Mm -hmm. As they go back inside, Tony announces that Lee Marshall has reached Kevin Nash's locker room, so we go to split screen. Couldn't we have timed this for the sleeper holds earlier? Or, you know, after the match? Nah, nah, no time for that. (laughs) Marshall knocks. But he gets six instead, who mumbles something inaudible and slams the door. Dusty theorizes, he said, I'm slamming the door in your face. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Mysterio hits a springboard front flip into the ring for two, and we're back to full screen as he hits a guillotine leg drop for two. Rapid counter sequence in the corner, and Dragon drop kicks Mysterio into the ring post and out to the floor. Dragon drop kicks through the ropes, skins the cat, and hits a crossbody to Mysterio on the floor. Mysterio flips over a dragon suplex back in, a regular suplex that is done by Ultimo Dragon, not a dragon suplex. Yes. But Dragon counters a springboard moonsault with a dropkick in midair. Wow. Mm -hmm. Giant swing by Dragon, but Dusty notes that he's ended up a wobblin himself. (laughs) (laughs) Mysterio counters a charge with a cartwheel leap hurricanrana for two, but Dragon reverses for two then flips over a back body drop and hits an enzigiri for two as Tanay name drops Inoki. Of course. Hard clothesline into a dragon super hurricanrana for two, but then a fast counter sequence ends with Mysterio countering a dragon-dragon suplex, that's awkward to say, a bit, with a roll-up for two, reversed by dragon for two. Mysterio ducks a dragon spin wheel kick and hits a springboard hurricanrana for the three count and the win. Dragon looks shocked, and Mysterio quickly rolls out and collapses by the barricade, where Curtis comes to raise his hand. Mysterio walks around ringside, getting congratulations from the fans, as we get replays of the Super Hurricane Rana, and Mysterio's winning springboard Rana, and Tony says goodbye to Mike Tanay. 
Thoughts on this one? That was a really strong match. To the point you made before, they really built up to Mysterio's comeback here. I think long-term it works, but if you're viewing the match in real time, they definitely draw that intro bit out where he's getting beat up all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a negative because, like I said, there's payoff to it. It's not like going back to Stark in 97 where it's Sting being beaten up in this one-sided thing and doesn't really ever get the proper you know response there. Right. But yeah, just going on early on, you really don't quite get the match you're used to, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a different kind of match. It's definitely a really good match as far as the action goes. It's nice and varied. They make sure to have my start hitting strikes and counters and everything. It's thankfully what you'd expect from Mysterio and Ultimo Dragon. It's not a disappointment, which is definitely good to start a show with something this strong. Yeah, no surprise here given the participants, but this was one heck of an opening match. I really liked that while they could have easily just started with their flipping and flying and already had something great, instead they started with some nice mat work and counter-wrestling to show that they were both more than just acrobatics. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. From there, there's loads of creative and intricate acrobatic moves and hard hits that made this one an engaging watch. Um, I do agree with you, though. It feels like they maybe spent a little too long with Mysterio taking Dragon's offense for the first half of the match. It never seems to lose the crowd, though, and indeed they roar every time Mysterio even hints at a comeback. Mm -hmm. So it clearly was working the way these guys intended. I just felt like maybe, like you, it went on a little bit long there. Right. I really enjoyed the match story, highlighted quite well by the commentators. Dragon wanted to truly prove himself better than Mysterio, so he actually bypasses some of his chances to win to try to break Mysterio's spirits, Yeah, which gives Mysterio the chance he needs to turn things around. An exceptional and very well-performed opener with two of WCW's best. There's nothing involving Mysterio and Dragon, sadly, on the next show. We did the, already done the show that follows this. <laughs> yes. And we have Mysterio versus Yuji Yasuoroka. Right. Who, sadly, it only makes the one appearance on pay-per-view, which is kind of weird, but... That was a pretty good one, though, as I recall. Yeah. That was neat. There is more involving Dragon, but that involves the ladder match, so I'm saving that. Okay. Tony throws backstage to Lee Marshall again, and he goes to knock on Nash's door again. Doug Dellinger and security are around as well. Six answers the door, and Marshall asks for Nash, saying he was promised a statement. But suddenly, the Steiners arrive, trying to push past security. Scott Steiner bellows at Nash as he shows up. Nash asks if it's an ambush, and Marshall says it's not, it's his chance to air his demands. Nash says he's got no problem taking on both Steiners, but he wants Nick Patrick as referee. He tells the security team to hold Scott back, then spits on him, so an enraged Scott tries to push forward and gets maced by Doug Dellinger. Yeah. Dellinger is no longer messing around. You will comply. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Scott screams for Rick as cops slap on handcuffs and hold Rick back so he can't interfere. I haven't gotten the full story in this, but basically Scott Hall just kind of hasn't been around. Like, not even just not booked in the show. He's just kind of an AWOL, unfortunately. Which has been mentioned on TV on the night shows going forward. They ask about why he's not there. So it's not like they're trying to ignore his absence. Unfortunately, I guess they may have thought he would be back by this show so they could sort of move on normally. But unfortunately, he's not. So they sort of come up with this elaborate way to change the story around last minute. Yeah, yeah. A little bait and switch, but forced by Hall. Yeah. So obviously this is there to just resolve the Scott Hall situation and get the revised match plan going, like you said. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's a decent enough way to do it. You get Nash manipulating the Steiners into doing something stupid. I, I do think he's maybe a bit too obvious about it. The cops and security guys should clearly recognize what he did and arrest him as well as Scott. Yeah. Both escalating the situation. Sure. But for getting to the match that they feel like they have to do now, this works. The only thing that's muddled a bit with that is, so Doug Dellinger is there as like officially WCW security. Right. But then there's like the arena security is there and there's actual cops. So there's like three different levels of security here in this tiny hallway. And the thing ultimately hinges upon Scott bumping or they never really like punches one. No. But making some sort of physical contact with a cop there in the midst of like 20 people in like a tiny hallway. Yes. I can't understand three layers of security, though, when you're dealing with the Steiners. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the future is definitely useful. Yeah. It was kind of awesome to see Dellinger not taking any crap and just outright macing a guy, too. When, when does he ever do that? Yeah. Normally, he just brings out a bunch of jobbers to get beaten up by whoever he's trying to stop or kind of wards people off via official-looking gestures. Yeah. Sort of waves his hands, don't go there, come on. <laughs> just think of all the situations that could have been resolved by Doug Dellinger in a can of mace. <laughs> I did actually think of something. Oh, okay. Thinking ahead, seeing this, Bret Hart could obviously hire Doug Dellinger for the night. So when Vince McMahon goes to yell and ring the bell, he gets a faithful and mate. <laughs> so no screw job for you. <laughs> Going back a bit, we have the famous NWO backstage assault with Boris Stewart being thrown by a lawn dart. I figured Doug coming out with the mace, just taking Nash out maybe. Yeah, that that that, could, that would really put a brace on that. I'd think at, le- at least do Hall. I mean, he might not have been able to reach Nash with the mace. True, true. Yeah. I mean, so, so tall. <laughs> yes. Going outside the world of wrestling, we have an event that happens a little bit after this, involving Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. Oh, right. Tyson starts making eyes. You know, got to take care of him, Doug. <laughs> and lastly, I have him interfering before. Lake is assassinated. He just, he's, he just sort of pops out and just maces John Luke's booth and he goes into the, into the booth. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. I, I think some of those are, are perhaps more, more reasonable than others, but yeah, you sure. Know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know his actual age. He could have been there. <laughs> we go right to our second match, which is Medusa versus Akira Hokuto with Sonny Ono. For Hokuto's WCW Women's Heavyweight Championship, the referee for this one is Mickey J. And Lee Marshall is joining the commentary team for this one, having thankfully escaped being maced himself. <laughs> As you may recall, about a year or so earlier, Medusa left the WWF when they weren't from the women's division. So eventually, WCW decided to, you know, make one again, having a big tournament involving a bunch of Japanese wrestlers, two of which were both the Akira Hokuto. Yes. One in a mask and one as herself, because they couldn't fill eight people, apparently. And of course, they didn't give the title to Medusa, which I'm sure she loved when they told her that one. He's like, oh, I don't get the title after, you know, I threw this other title in the trash for you and all that. And they were probably like, well, you have a history of throwing titles at trash cans. She's like, you told me to. Yeah, at your request, you in fact paid me more money to do so. <laughs> you allegedly paid me an extra, like, five, six figures, I think, for that. You know what? For that for that amount of money, I, I'll show up and throw a title belt in the trash anytime someone wants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so following that, Akira Hokuto was mostly absent from Nitro and the shows. Obviously, she's busy in Japan, where she works there. So the story they've been trying to build up in recent times is that she's refusing to come back to America and defend the title. 
which theoretically would build up to a cross-promotional show where Medusa goes to in Japan, but no, it'd be too interesting. <laughs> so instead, they just set this title match up on this show. So naturally, bearing in mind that she won't come in the title in America, it's a big deal that she's going to fight Medusa. She defends the title on the, the Nitro right before this. <laughs> like, I get... Come on! I Right? I get you wanting, you need to like remind people what she is for the match, but the whole point is she wouldn't have the title. Oh yeah, she'll fight this random lady. You could just have it be a non-title match. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's bizarre. I love Medusa's theme music. It's a very like cool electric guitar and kind of a blues and country style. Oh yeah, yeah. It really is, is quite fitting. Mm-hmm. She comes out in her traditional American-themed outfit. It looks good, but I do think she needs to extend the full flag design all the way around the shorts instead of just having a kind of a bikini pattern atop the flat red shorts. Yeah, flag thong is a little weird. Yeah. Akira Hokuto comes out accompanied by Sunny Ono. Hokuto wears her awesome elaborate kimono and poses for a selfie with Ono. Ono has a cool Akira Hokuto t-shirt on under his usual suit coat in a more subtle way of dressing up for his client like Jimmy Hart does. Yeah. Hokuto's actual wrestling gear is a really nice blue, white, and gold combo. Looks kind of like a superhero warrior queen. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> the commentators discuss Scott Steiner getting maced. And I believe this is where Dusty mentions that at some point he was maced himself. He does mention that, yes. <laughs> yeah. He does, yeah. Marshall doubts that Steiner can compete later tonight. Heenan wonders why the Steiners even went to the dressing room since things were already going in their favor. Tony pretty much agrees that they caused their own problem, but notes that he understands the Steiners being unable to control their emotions given everything that's happened to them in the past few months. Also, I'd note, due to being the Steiners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hokuto lands kicks and flings Medusa around by her hair, stops a punch combo with a chop, and chokes Medusa repeatedly, including an impressive elevated choke in the center of the ring as the commentary team totally ignores the match yeah, and continues arguing whether Scott Steiner will be able to compete. Guys, match going on? Right. Tony refocuses everyone as Hokuto interestingly pulls the back of Medusa's neck against the top rope rather than like choking her against it. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a neat uh, twist there. Mm -hmm. Then slams her for one as Medusa fluidly slips free and bridges out. Her flag vest comes undone, so after a couple leaping hair takedowns for two, she gets annoyed with it and throws it out. Don't worry, she's still decent. Mm-hmm. Hokuto up top, but Medusa hits a cool handstand Frankensteiner. Tony confesses that he didn't even notice that Sonny Ono had entered along with Hokuto. <laughs> and Marshall brings up Hog Wild last year, where Ono represented Bull Nakano. That would be Hokuto's teammate from Collision in Korea. Yep. Hokuto bites Medusa then stands on her leg, earning a lecture from Jay. So Ono punches and chokes Medusa. Marshall gets in a great line, wondering if we'll ever get to see Medusa in a singles match. <laughs> now, I will say there's one thing about that. I'm not I'm sure it's the botch or not. He mentions a bunch of incidents that have happened, and he mentions her being attacked by Luna Vachon. Mm-hmm. It's possible he's, he's referring to Luna's debut, where she attacks Medusa while she's doing an interview. But it's not a match. It's not a match, yes. Okay. So I'm wondering if he uh, read, read ahead, ahead in the story a bit. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Yeah. Entirely possible, yeah. Because he, he says it, and then like no one responds, and he just sort of stops talking. <laughs> like Maybe he realizes he said something he was supposed to. Oops. 
Hokuto torture rack, but Medusa rolls her up for two. Medusa's second rope dropkick says Marshall references her dumping the WWF women's title in the garbage back when she first showed up in WCW, and says that she considers the WCW women's title her destiny. Medusa German suplex bridge for two and nine-tenths, and the bell actually mistakenly rings. Yeah. Ono to the apron, but Medusa jump kicks him. Jay is distracted yelling at Ono, and Hokuto tries a roll-up, but Medusa back elbows her and tries a power bomb. But Luna Vashan suddenly slips in and kicks her knee, allowing Hokuto to roll through and pin her as Jay turns to deliver the three-count for the win. Hokuto does a quick celebratory dance as she flees the ring, grabs her belt, and runs up the ramp with Sunny Ono to get away from the angry Medusa. We get replays of a second rope Medusa dropkick, the jump kick that knocked Ono down, the finish, and Hokuto holding up her belt as she retreated from ringside, during which some jerk in the crowd actually reached out to fondle her breast. Oh yeah, I saw that. Seriously? I'm hoping that that was somehow accidental, but it looked really intentional. Mm. Thoughts on this one? It was a good match, but obviously the problem they have is that they're given no time to work with here. Mm -hmm. It's like five minutes, I think. Yeah. So they've got to squeeze in all their stuff. And they really, this was a duo that I'm sure, if we can see more of them from Japan or other places, that maybe they have really good 10, 15-minute matches that are given time to breathe. But unfortunately, they have to basically run this in one and a half times speed. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a shame, because the whole... They try to make a point of saying how important this stuff is, but then they talk over half the match like they don't yes. care. And then the match has no time anyways. Yeah, they spend like close to the first half of the match, I think, actually discussing the NWO and Scott Steiner storyline, which yeah. I will say that's that's unfortunately just kind of a hallmark of the NWO era at yeah. times, not just in these matches, but at random oh, yeah. points on any show, they'll just be distracted by something about the NWO angle and not talk about the match at hand. Right. And to be fair, they unfortunately cut into the Dragon Mysterio match, so it's not like it's just this match happening but it definitely uh, adds to the sense of these aren't getting valued. Yeah, exactly. It's also disappointing to see a run and finish on this. I get that it's setting up a match that we have since seen. Yes. On Slambury between Vishan and Medusa. It's also disappointing that the timing just a bit off. Because I think the idea is supposed to be that she kicks the leg and Hokuto can sort of like do like a hurricane run or some head scissors to get out of it. Maybe, yeah. But the way it kind of comes off, she basically takes a fairly soft powerbomb because of the timing and because maybe she wasn't supposed to do a full powerbomb. And sort of, to her credit, does roll through and doesn't get a pin off it, but it's not the smooth thing that they were going for. Yeah, it doesn't look quite like one smooth motion like you were maybe expecting. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think the timing's just a little bit off, maybe. It's certainly not easy spot to pull off. So I'm not necessarily in a judgmental way, but it was not done properly, unfortunately. Yeah. I thought this was a fun match. I agree it's very short and it's it's a little bit simple. I do feel like the two could do a lot more than this. And like you said, it didn't help that the commentary team spent a good chunk of the match discussing a totally unrelated storyline. Still, for the time it got, they put on some good, solid action, and they included some impressive spots that showed off their speed, precision, and flexibility. The ending, it has a lot of various parts and actually does work together quite well Ono's distraction of Jay and the roll up and then the powerbomb starting and mm-hmm. Luna charging in. All that actually works together quite well. It's just the the actual critical moment of the powerbomb versus the kick 
that seems a little bit off timed, but like you said, it's a complicated spot. Yeah. So it's hard to get everything to go 100% perfect. But I did like the complexity of it that you get kind of a, a false finish of Ono's initial distraction and a roll up, but that doesn't turn out to be the real end. Mm-hmm. And then that gets countered by the actual interference by Vashan. I also wonder if the really close near fall with the kick out and the suplex was like a test, sort of see crowd reaction, see whether they'd give it to Medusa. Give it the I could belt, see maybe? that. I could see that. So while this was quite short, and I could have done with much more from them, it still ended up being an interesting and entertaining match. Yeah, it's a good but unfortunately truncated showcase for the two, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you definitely get to see some of what they can do, and it whets your appetite for more. Yeah. But you just never really get more at any point, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. As mentioned, Medusa would, of course, wrestle Luna Vachon at Slambri, which we saw already. Where Luna decided to check if she had appendicitis at one point, and that really weird belly oh. hold. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Following that, Medusa will once again go for the title of the Great American Bash, series I'm looking forward to covering in the future. I should also note that on the Go Home Nitro, they began a tournament for the WCW Women's Cruiserweight Championship, a title even less mentioned and focused on than the WCW Women's Now Heavyweight Championship. Yes. <laughs> Basically, what they did was they had these two random Japanese ladies. I'm sure they're notable in Japan, but... For as far as the audience watching Nitro in 97 goes, it's these two random Japanese ladies wrestling a match. This guy holds up a title saying we're having a tournament here. One of them wins. It gets a decent reaction, but there's no buildup at all to it. It's just, hey, here's the thing we're doing now. Yeah. The rest of the match would happen on WCW Saturday night or on main event. And the title would only ever be defended in a person called Gaia in Japan which is one of surprisingly large amount of women-only promotions in Japan. Yeah. It's a bigger thing in there than is here, for sure. A little factoid I discovered as well doing this. I mentioned on the Collision Korea show about El Samurai's longevity, because he would win a title in 2010, and that show was 1995. I actually have something to beat that. Okay. So the only connective thread between the women's cruiserweight tournament and the women's heavyweight tournament is Mako Satomura. Okay. She was a couple years in her career at that point in Japan. She loses both first-round matches in the tournaments. She will go on to continue wrestling to this day. She is the current NXT UK Women's Champion. Okay. So she's holding a title right now in WE. Wow. And this is 1997. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What? 20, 24 years? Yeah. Wow. Okay. More power to her. That's impressive. Yeah, right? <laughs> Our third match is Lord Stephen Regal versus the artist currently known as Prince Iakea for Iakea's WCW World Television Championship. The referee for this one is Mark Curtis. A couple months back, Regal's TV title reign was interrupted by a surprise upset win by Iakea. The story they're going with is that no one thinks he can hold on to the title, but he's managed to do so pretty successfully so far. Mm-hmm. He's wrestling regular on TV, as you would imagine, with the belt, and actually fans on pay-per-view, which is pretty good. They just sort of put it off for a bit, but Regal is now getting his, his sort of mandated rematch from this. It's notable on the Go Home Nitro, he actually loses the match to Chris Jericho. Oh. Back when he's full Lionheart, babyface, come on, baby. Yes. Vest wearing, you know. Rock and roll lyrics, going Jericho. Teen movie theme. 
entrance theme. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, he wouldn't take that loss well, so he would beat up Jericho, followed by a parade of cruiserweight and cruiserweight-style jobbers that would come out conveniently one by one, like it's a kung fu film. Yes. Wait their turn. Among them, you would see Joe Gomez. All right. His tag partner, the Renegade. Yes. Who's still around. And a pre-flock Billy Kidman wearing regular wrestling gear, which surprised the hell out of me. It, it is a rare, rare, rare thing, but definitely something you very occasionally see in the early years, yeah. Like he's not wearing a tank top and shorts? I don't get it. What's going on here? Who, who are you, sir? Yeah, right? It's bizarre. <laughs> I was like, I think that looks like Billy Kidman, and it says Kidman on his tights there, but that can't be Billy Kidman. <laughs> it's like a Joe Kidman I'm not aware of. He's dressed like an actual wrestler. What the heck? Yeah, it was very strange. <laughs> it's a pretty awesome culture clash, seeing Regal come out to Clark's very formal and elegant Prince of Denmark's march in front of an Old West town set. <laughs> a bit, yeah. <laughs> I'm not fond of Regal's new robe, though. I do like the frills on the front, but the rest of it looks like shiny plastic or something rather than normal cloth, so it kind of clashes to me. It's like it's supposed to look like a colonial era thing, but instead it looks like a Halloween costume of a colonial era <laughs> outfit. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Hayakea has a neat drum-heavy piece for his entrance and does a traditional dance when he enters the ring. Dusty says Ayakea has earned his way to the championship and that both he and Diamond Dallas Page have the matches of their lives tonight. And Heenan chimes in that Ayakea has more confidence each time he comes out. Dusty says he said that, and Heenan says he was interpreting. (laughs) (laughs) Regal argues with a large group of fans at ringside as Tony promotes the WCW website, which is apparently the hottest website on the internet. I, I doubt that. Yes. <laughs> and also, just to ire me, it's WCWWrestling.com. Yes. What's that second W mean again? <laughs> ah, well. I guess they were worried that if they typed it as WC Wrestling, someone would uh, think it meant water closet wrestling. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Regal cheap shot, but Ayakea knocks him flat and gives a good, determined look. Regal argues with the fans some more, as Tony says that Scott Steiner has been arrested. So the Outsiders versus Steiners is now Nash versus Rick Steiner, but it's still for the tag titles. Ayakea side headlock takeover for two, but Regal rolls him over for one. Regal works the arm, but Ayakea escapes and puts on a headlock, keeping it on through several Regal escape attempts until Regal cheap shots him on a rope break. Tony mentions that Dennis Rodman has joined the NWO, but he's still nice enough to promote Rodman's movie, Double Team also starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. That's a classic. <laughs> it, it's a classic of sorts. <laughs> and it got, it got its own sequel, so that's something. Yes, yes it did. That is a thing that happened. Yeah. Regal beats Ayakea up and does a muscle pose. <laughs> Tony explains Scott's actual offense was striking a cop. And surprisingly, Heenan defends him, saying that he was just going for Nash and everybody else was just in the way. Was just kind of funny. Like Dusty yeah. actually criticizes him, and Heenan defends him. Yeah, Heenan really is a face as long as it involves you being at the NWO. Yeah, he will take any opportunity for that. It is. It's actually a fascinating thing with his commentary mm-hmm. that he actually decided this will be a unique thing for a heel commentator to do. Yeah, I will not defend this one specific group of heels. Yeah, it's just it's really really interesting, and he still will do some things where he kind of 
has a cowardly side. So if they're too close to him or something like that, he'll kind of start speaking more favorably of them. Or right, right, yeah. if it's looking like things are really starting to go their way, then he'll start edging towards it. Mm. But otherwise, he's just as strongly against NWO as the rest of the announcers, which is really cool yeah. with him being a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Regal throws Iakea through the ropes, but he springboards back in for one. Regal tries to claim Iakea was close fist punching. Heenan says Iakea, as champ, should hang back and force Regal to take risk and make mistakes. Tony's actually in agreement, but then Heenan goes full heel by noting he means Iakea doesn't even have to win the match, just keep his title by any means necessary. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Iakea wins a test of strength for two, but Regal blocks a knee drop, kips up, and eye pokes him, then claims that it was a legal open hand slap with a very wonderful, innocent expression. It's a European thing, yeah. Regal locks on a full Nelson. The commentators go back to Steiner versus Nash, saying that with Nick Patrick as ref, it's now effectively a two-versus-one match. Hayakea escapes, slips a bit on a sunset flip attempt, and completes it on the second try. Nice recovery there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Regal punches free and lands vicious strikes, but Hayakea fights back with double chops, and Regal retreats as Hayakea challenges him. Tony says Hayakea's dander is up, and Dusty is tremendously abused by this. <laughs> right. It's not quite as good reaction as the uh, dragon screw leg whip. Yeah. That, time that, he hears it, but it's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, that's peak, uh, peak dusty reaction. Yeah. <laughs> Regal calmly dodges an Iakea springboard crossbody and looks insufferably pleased with himself. He does, yeah. Iakea reverses a whip for several strikes, but Regal hits the brakes on another whip and goes for a roll-up, only for Iakea to spin and catch him with a sudden pin for the three count and the win. Surprising ending there that gets pretty big cheers from the crowd. Yeah, yeah. Regal attacks Iakea after the bell, and they trade blows, but Regal gets Iakea down and puts on the Regal stretch as Curtis tries to get him to let go. Regal finally does let go and yells at Curtis, then goes back and puts the hold back on, smashing Iakea with the belt in the process. Dellinger, you, you want to come out with that can of mace? Yeah, I was going to say, you can't establish him as his presence and then ignore him for yeah. the show, right? <laughs> Just, nope, nope, he's, he's done with that. He got his uh, macing in for the day, I guess. Yeah. Regal beats up Iakea until he just kind of decides he's done and goes away. Dusty, <laughs> in the middle of making a point about this being a costly victory for Iakea, gets very distracted as the camera cuts to one of the decorative cactuses around the arena. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, well, you talk about costly victories, this could be a very costly victory for the prince right here, Cactus. <laughs> right here in the middle of Cactus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Dusty Rhodes. Oh, Mick is in the wrong company now. Yeah, true. <laughs> we get a replay of the finish, and Heenan pronounces Iakea as Iakeu. <laughs> uh, no. Close, close enough. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I thought it was a pretty solid match. The one thing would be that, while it's really technically solid for the most part, it's a bit slower paced as the story. Because obviously there's a good story here, which is that Regal is just trying to wear this guy down. Regal obviously knows how the TV title rules work. He knows how much time he has. Yeah. So that kind of plays into that a bit. He doesn't do things he doesn't have to do to try and get the victory. He knows how to work this kind of match. I think this kind of match works really well when it's simple Regal and Mysterio where his big comebacks are really vibrant. Mm-hmm. So you can get two minutes of a hole working him down and then a Hurricane Rana. I don't think IK's offense is bad. It's just it's not quite as strong as I think you need for this kind of story to work properly to get the good crowd reaction consistently. 
Mm-hmm. It's also good that it builds up to presumably the rematch between these two with the post-match angle as well. And I'll see the story is nice that after all of his boasting and bragging and showmanship, Regal is beaten by a wrestling move. Yeah. And not like a strike or something. Right. Yeah. He actually gets out wrestled in the end. Yeah. IK is only actually like a couple years into his career as a whole and only actually one year into WCW. And you can kind of tell because a lot of this match uses simpler spots than the norm for a Regal match. Sure. But at the same time, it doesn't really work much against it. They keep a pretty good pace have nice intensity, and make excellent use of the spots that Ayakea can do to put on a nice little contest. So it doesn't have the technical artistry of other Regal matches, but it still has his really strong character, and he works really well with the less experienced talent, giving Ayakea a chance to look good and prove himself to the fans. And it works quite well, as the fans actually do seem quite behind Ayakea, and cheer pretty big for his victory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's not the... Uh, Mysterio sleeper hold spot earlier in the night, but that was a unique thing. (laughs) Yeah, sure. There's a flub or two along the way, but they recover very quickly and they never lose their stride. And I agree, the ending was really nice. It's a creative double counter. They had to go perfectly to work, and it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All told, I quite enjoyed this, and early Ayakea has very clear potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Please ignore Slambury 2000. Yes. On the following night, we would get a match between Steven Regal and Mysterio, which would end in Mysterio being beaten up pretty badly by Regal, who's still enraged by what happened on the night before. And the post-match shenanigans, Regal would also beat up the Prince, who would come out to try and help Mysterio. Later in the same night, Ikea would still go for his mandatory title defense against Ultimo Dragon. Okay. So despite seemingly that match angle opening the show being about who's going to challenge next the title, it's the guy that lost the match. I mean, it wasn't officially a tenders match, but it's kind of weird that Mysterio doesn't challenge for the title again, and the Dragon does, in spite of what happened. Yeah, yeah, you'd think that you'd go for the guy with more recent victory, but... Yeah. So in that match, Ikea comes out with his ribs bandaged up, an idea that I'm sure he learned from someone backstage. <laughs> and as you can imagine, fighting Ultimo Dragon with banged up ribs is not good, and he would lose a TV title to Dragon. Okay. Seemingly, all this build-up with the post-match angle and Regal and Ikea doesn't actually go anywhere. That's unfortunate. Yeah. At least not for the title. Maybe they have follow-up matches non-title, but it's kind of a shame that there's not a follow-up story to that. Yeah, yeah, especially with them doing quite a bit to establish Ikea here Yeah, as a, as a good talent. You'd think that they'd kind of push the story a little bit forward and yeah. further establish him, but unfortunately, they're taking the title off of him even. Yeah, Literally the next night, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dragon's a good choice for a TV title holder, obviously, so I had nothing against him on that, but no, no. it does feel like Ayakea kind of gets interrupted then in his build. Yeah. He's like, look, he, he can survive all these challenges. Oh, no, he can't now. Yeah. We cut to Mean Gene Okerlund in front of the Old West Town set, and he runs through the announce crew for the night and shills the hotline with news of a new click and a car accident, though he is nice enough to say everyone was okay, so good to know. 1-900-909-9900. He brings out Ric Flair, sadly in boring jacket, denim shirt, and khakis rather than bejeweled robe. Aw. Though it does fit in a little bit better with the Western set's colors, I guess. Sure, sure. Amusingly, Gene says Flair is river dancing as he struts around. <laughs> 90s! <laughs> this one is quite a lengthy segment, so I'm just going to recap it rather than play the audio. Makes sense, yeah. 
Okerlund asks Flair about his imminent return. Flair says hello to Tupelo and says two things happen tonight. The horsemen that are functioning, that's Mongo, Jarrett, and Benoit, walk the aisle horseman style. And two, the nature boy has the doctor's orders to return May 1st. He's ready to be back in the game. I should point out that's not something that happens tonight, Flair, but whatever. Yeah. He talks up Steve Mongo McMichael, Chris Benoit, and Jeff Jarrett, who he calls a bit of a pretty boy. He talks about Arn Anderson's upcoming surgery and says he knows the enforcer will be back to walk the aisle again. Gene says he and all the fans wish Anderson the best. He asks Flair about Roddy Piper, and Flair says Piper is the hot rod, and notes that Kevin Green was given permission by the Carolina Panthers to wrestle in WCW. Flair says he and Green have mutual respect. Really? Yeah, what's that based on? (laughs) And he invited Green to wrestle alongside him, and Green said yes. He says Hogan's the only thing missing. So he challenges Hogan, Hall, Nash, Savage, etc., to a match on the 18th, i.e. Slamboree. Mm-hmm. He won't guarantee victory, but he'll guarantee a workout. Gene calls Eric Bischoff a little dirtbag. <laughs> Flair says the last thing that he'll do in this sport is beat up Eric Bischoff with basically all of his limbs bound. <laughs> <laughs> Flair has a lot of stuff to cover on this one, and maybe some of it could have waited till Nitro. Yeah, But I do appreciate that even in the midst of making challenges and talking about his future return, he and Gene have time to build up the horsemen that are actually fighting on this show. Yeah. And even to wish Arn Anderson well for an upcoming surgery. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Though Arn actually does show up on the show briefly later, this is the period when he was legitimately having some big medical problems, including his left arm entirely giving out on a few occasions. It would eventually lead to his retirement a few months after the show as he realized that further impacts would risk paralysis or death. Yeah. He was hoping the surgery would fix the problem, and unfortunately it didn't do enough. Yeah. I think he tells one story I remember of him like working out, doing fine, and then someone comes up and just says, hey, Aaron, and slaps him on the back and his arm just ceases to function. Oh, I heard that story. That's just like, I can see that just being the terrifying moment where you realize I need to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, Flair does a good job building up his return and the slamboree match that he's going to have, even if he does get the eventual participants slightly wrong. (laughs) It's still weird to hear Flair talking about mutual respect with Kevin Green, though. He bribed Kevin Green's friend to betray him less than a year prior, and Green is clearly not over it, considering he's going to fight Mongo for revenge two months after this. He just, I guess, forgot who did the bribing. (laughs) Or maybe he considers Flair some kind of benevolent trickster god who tests mortals to see if they are worthy. Thus, Flair was just performing his duty, and it was Mongo who was found wanting. If anyone could pass as Loki, it would be definitely Flair. Yeah. He, he could easily do a Loki role, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. I'm always wary of interview segments just to build up other shows on a pay-per-view, because obviously at this point it's different because we're watching it much later, but... In 1997, you're paying to watch the show, and I guess you're, you are paying to see Flair, but it seems like kind of a time filler a bit. It's an entertaining time filler, and it gets storyline across, but I'm always worried of just pure interview segments on pay-per-view, because pay-per-view is for the matches. But it's not an interview segment about the match that's happening like right, the yeah, show. Right, that's true, yeah. Yeah. Like a caveat there, yeah. Even then, um, there's a couple of shows where they'll have interview segments about a match on the same show. I'm like, I feel like you don't need this This also. It needs to add something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this This was a perfectly good segment that probably could have just been done on the next Nitro. Yeah. 
you know, like we said earlier, the women's match got five minutes. Mm-hmm. Give this five or six minutes to the women's match. Yeah. I love Flair, and he does a great job here, but it just feels like this doesn't add something to this show. Right. Yeah, the following nature, you get a long, very strange bit where Piper is officially invited and accepts the opportunity for Slambury. It's very strange. Um, they go and like half shoot sort of joking manner about each other, like like we reference like weird road stories that no one knows but them. <laughs> and then the segment ends, I kid you not, with uh Flair having a random woman like he said he'd seen her somewhere, who's a big fan of him, comes out wearing one of Roddy Piper's shirts, and I guess she's the final payment for him to join the okay. team. I'm like, gee, I'm sure Piper's wife and kids would love to see this segment at home. I mean, he's not he's not known as like a philandering guy. Yeah, yeah. The whole point is he would go back home to like uh, South Dakota or wherever he lived on like a farm with his kids and his wife and lived a reasonable life. But it's like, nah, I'll just bribe him with the woman I found in, <laughs> in town. It's very strange. Maybe the bribe actually is just the shirt. Oh, okay. <laughs> at least he didn't try doing that with uh, Ricky Steamboat, the guy whose theme music actually said family man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he tried it as a heel at some point, but as a face, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our fourth match is The Public Enemy, that's Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge, versus Jeff Jarrett and Mongo McMichael of The Horsemen, with Deborah McMichael accompanying them. Referee for this one is Mickey J. So this one got kind of a bit of a delay due to how Uncensored card got rebooked at the last minute. Basically... They have been a back and forth thing with these two teams. They keep interfering in terms of matches. There's a whole thing where they fight over the Halliburton briefcase and there's tables, all the stuff you expect between Mongo and his lovely metal, very digged up briefcase. Which I guess he only has one of. <laughs> and Public Enemy at their tables. There's actually a bit on one of the nitros where Public Enemy would actually lose a match to, of all people, high voltage. Holy crap, really? Yeah. Due to the interference by them. The worst thing to happen to Public Enemy until they would go to Sunday Night Heat against the Acolytes, which ended much worse for them. But yeah, so it's kind of weird. They started building this story up, then they stopped it for Uncensored, and then they just started back up again. Okay. It still flows pretty well, but it's kind of there's an odd gap there. The crowd does not do much better waving their hands in time than Public Enemy do this time. What's well, a serious match, Bob? They don't have time to do it right. <laughs> Of course, Public Enemy have a table with them, per usual, which they set up at ringside. The Horsemen come out to the awesome Horsemen guitar theme, and all is right with the world. Even if the Horsemen in this case are Jeff Jarrett and Mongo, accompanied by Queen of the WCW, Deborah. Sigh. I love that they actually printed it with that. It's not just people calling her that. There is a legitimate, like, sash with Queen of the WCW on it. And no one realized in the entire production process that that was wrong. Also, so given this match and given the setting, since Public Enemy came with the table, shouldn't the horsemen come out with at least one horse? <laughs> that would be awesome. I mean, that name would totally work. Where's two of us? There's one horse. That's how it works. There you go. Yeah. Nighty nighty, welcome to Mongo's party, Mongo shouts. I, I, I kind of love that man, honestly. <laughs> Doesn't always make sense, but he's always energetic. Yes. You cannot fault his enthusiasm. That's true. Jarrett's outfit remains terrible. Yes. As the teams line up, Tony says the NWO is getting stronger, but the horsemen are working out the kinks to prepare to face them. 
Dusty tries to sell us on the Dungeon of Doom getting stronger too. Well, yes, but in the same way that negative 296.95 is better than negative 297. Yes. Well, also, the Horsemen just faced the NWO last show as well. I guess prepare to face them better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mongo and Rock start, and Rock shoves Mongo, earning a slap and hard shove back. Rock works a headlock, then lands strikes and chokes, but Mongo reverses a whip, and Jarrett nails Rock from the apron. Grunge in, but Mongo tackles him, then tackles Rock, and Mongo and Jarrett strut in unison. Dusty says they ought to worry about wrestling, not strutting, but Heenan and Tony say it actually shows that they're working as a team. I suppose, yeah. Which I'll allow. I mean, Mongo and Jarrett, I think, to this point, have had a little bit of at-oddsness in their angles. Very much so. Yes. It is kind of a neat, hey, we're actually on the same page now spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tags to Jarrett and Grunge, and Jarrett distracts Grunge by complaining about hair pulls, then slugs him when he's distracted looking at the ref. Jarrett face buster, then abdominal stretch, but Heenan jokes that Grunge has too much abdominal for the stretch. No. Oh. <laughs> Jarrett uses Mongo for leverage, then the ropes, but gets caught, and Jay breaks, so Grunge flips Jarrett down. Jarrett tries a leapfrog, but Grunge waits and slugs him as he lands. Cute. Yeah, that was a good spot, yeah. Rock slugs Jarrett, and Grunge scoops Jarrett up as Mongo gets in and awkwardly stands there for a moment. Grunge atomic drops Jarrett into Mongo. Grunge clothesline to Jarrett, and he retreats up the ramp momentarily. Dusty and Heenan nicely chalk Mongo's paws up to an in-character rookie mistake, charging in but not knowing how best to help his partner, rather than an out-of-character timing error. Yeah, I mean, it's a good cover in their part, to be fair. Jarrett, brilliantly, sarcastically counts along with Jay before he finally gets back into the ring at nine. Mm -hmm, Yeah. (laughs) Tags to Rock and Mongo, and Mongo hits big strikes and a sidewalk slam but slugs Grunge before going for a pin. Grunge charges in, so Mongo only gets two after Jay hustles Grunge back out of the ring. Deborah taunts Rock, who very audibly calls her a b- <laughs> twice. Wow. Jeez, man. Beautiful Mongo tilt-a-whirl slam gets two as Grunge saves, and Jarrett knocks Grunge out of the ring. Deborah slaps Grunge. Everyone outside... And we go to split screen. Not very long, thankfully. No. Mongo sends Rock into the side of a covered wagon. Grunge shoves Deborah onto the table, but Jarrett saves with the chair. But Grunge puts him on the table. Full screen, so we miss Mongo and Rock knocking over some steers. A delighted Heenan references the Blazing Saddles character Mongo knocking out a steer. He must have been saving that joke since Mongo first joined WCW. Oh, yeah, 100%. He sounds so happy. Yeah. What he's saying is great. Mm-hmm. Back to split screen, and Rock uses a broken horn against Mongo as Jarrett dodges Grunge's dive, so Grunge goes through the table. Full screen again, and everyone's back in. Jarrett crossbody to Grunge gets two as Rock saves. Grunge knocks Jarrett outside, and Mongo fights off both public enemy, but they actually block a double noggin knocker. When does that ever happen? It's pretty rare, yeah. Mongo tags Jarrett, who hits his beautiful dropkicks. Grunge tries a powerbomb, but Mongo sneaks in to clothesline him down. Jarrett slaps the figure four on Grunge as Jay encourages a cheering Mongo to leave, and Rock sneaks in and KOs Jarrett with Mongo's Halliburton. Jay turns, sees the unconscious Jarrett in figure four pose, and I guess assumes he passed out in the hold he himself was putting on? (laughs) 
so he delivers the three count and the win for Grunge, as Mongo's too late to save. Mongo is displeased. Public Enemy fail to arm wave in sync outside, as Mongo and Deborah argue in the ring over a barely conscious Jarrett. We get replays of the table crash and the Halliburton shot, then the pinfall. Mickey J could have counted to 50, Heenan jokes. <laughs> Thoughts? I thought it was a pretty fun, chaotic kind of mess of a match. Especially in one-on-one matches, you really have, it's like a sandwich. You have two ingredients, they go together. Hopefully they're ingredients that work together, you know, peanut butter and jelly, that kind of thing. In this case, you have a very complicated mix of things. You have public enemies plundering and brawling, which they do quite well. You have Jeff Jarrett's wrestling skill, which is you know, showing there's drop kicks and his suplexes and such. Those drop kicks are absolutely beautiful. On par with Hardcore Hollies, yeah. And then you have Mongo's just sort of sheer enthusiasm and power. <laughs> like I said, it's a very odd mix of things that could definitely, I think, not work. But for me, I actually kind of enjoyed it. They kept the fight mostly in and around the ring area, so it's not like other matches where they just fight everywhere and you can't follow it for the entire match. Or for, say, 80% of the match, like a lot of these end up being. I think the idea was they wanted to get every one sort of thing into the match. So Jerry gets to show his stuff. Mon gets to throw people around. You gotta give Public Enemy a brief, you know, outside the ring fight, table spot, just to make mm-hmm. them happy. Yeah. Together, it could be just too much and not work, but I kind of enjoyed it, actually. Yeah, I thought this was like the tag version of the previous match. It's fairly simple in design, with limited move variety to be careful about the least experienced wrestler in the ring, Mongo. And it also suffers from a couple minor flubs, but because the wrestlers recover quickly, it isn't hurt badly by them. Mm -hmm. Mongo does well with what he can do, and you definitely can't fault his enthusiasm or personality. I think that's one reason that I've always kind of liked the guy, even if he never gets that great at the wrestling side of things. He's always clearly trying his best and having a grand time. Mm Mm-hmm. Jarrett's experienced hand really helps this, as he's able to throw in some more complexity and some subtle story touches to build a sense of strategy and help build up the general horseman plot. And the enemy's good brawling style helps give this a good, hard-hitting feel. The ending felt a little bit odd. I would have liked Grunge to actually roll Jarrett up or something, but otherwise it was fine. So minor timing issues aside, I agree, I, I actually really enjoyed this one. They did a good job, like you said, of getting everyone's individual... Mm-hmm talents or abilities into the match without it feeling like they piled too much into it. Yeah, yeah. Despite winning this match, Public Enemy would be bumped to a dark match on the next show, St. Marie. Yes. It's surprising. <laughs> on the flip side, Jarrett and Manga would move on to a U.S. title and cross-sport match, respectively. We cut to Mean Gene in the locker room. The Public Enemy's theme keeps playing quite loudly over the start of his shilling of the hotline. 1-900-909-9900. He brings in Sister Sherry, Booker T, and Stevie Ray, Harlem Heat. I want at this time to have, come on in if you would, Sister Sherry, Booker T, Stevie Ray, the Harlem Heat, gentlemen. A match that really is turning out to be something else because I guess of the high stakes. The winner of this one getting a shot at Hollywood Hulk Hogan and the WCW Heavyweight Championship of the World. The winner of this four-corner match... Between Lex Luger, the Giant, these two men here tonight indeed is a big, big match in all of their careers. However, I should point out for the record something different. The way you win this one is with the first pin or the first submission. And Sister Sherry, you may be directing traffic. It's conceivable these two men will face each other. 
We have everything planned out. We have our strategy down to a minute point. It doesn't matter if they're in there together because we have a plan for that too. We have gone over and over and over again. And no matter which one's in there, we're behind the other. Divide and conquer. I thank you very much. Booker T, we've seen the intensity of the matches here tonight, and I expect the same thing is going to happen in this four-quarter match. Let me tell you something, Gino. Can you out here talking about a click? The only click you need to know about is the Harlem Heat and Sister Sherry. See, because what you're dealing with here is the brotherhood. It's nonstop from this point on in WCW. We take what we want, and after we take Lex Luger and the Giant, we want the gold, sucker. Hulk Hogan, we coming for you, sucker. Let's pause for a moment to note that the Peacock version, played here, dubs over a grievous error on the part of Booker T. Small, small error, yeah. Oversight. In which that line there did not end with sucka. No. But instead, Booker accidentally called Hulk Hogan the N-word. He did, yes. Booker immediately realizes what he has done and jerks back, briefly covering his face, as Gene rapidly redirects to Stevie Ray. Booker has the biggest frown in the world on his face. He does. Trying to stand there looking tough, but clearly embarrassed beyond belief. Mm -hmm. And Sherry gently pats his head, comforting him while trying mostly successfully not to laugh. Yeah, right. Stevie Ray is actually an impressive rock, just standing there, not reacting to the whole thing, and nicely carries on with the interview, which gives Booker something to react to so he can distract himself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's, it's kind of amazing considering how huge a flub it is how well they just kind of continue on and finish the segment kind of a show must go on moment yeah yeah <laughs> if only they'd shown that that kind of restraint with the uh, infamous shockmaster segment <laughs> yes <laughs> and everyone started laughing and swearing yeah the background when it happened yeah knowing this is coming up we're like how are we going to handle this segment because we can't play the original audio for obvious reasons yes but then we watch the Peacock version, like, oh, that makes it easy. We can just play this version. Yes, yeah. They have nicely given us a version that we can actually play on yeah. our show without being thrown off of the various podcasting services. <laughs> and thankfully for their part, Booker T said sucka about, what, 10,000 times during his time in WCW? So he had a Bevio clip to use to I'm, pick I'm, this one. I'm fairly certain it's literally taken from like three seconds before because it says sucka in exactly, exactly the same way. They've done a tremendously good job of actually blending it in, by the way. If you aren't watching the video, you really probably wouldn't detect that that was an overdub. Yeah, that's true. It's not bad. (laughs) Booker has talked about that since and says, you know, I I was just getting into the promo and Mm -hmm. getting emotional. And it just, that was how I talked at times, you know, growing up. And that just slipped out. He was not (laughs) happy with himself afterwards and is not happy with that promo, understandably. He takes it in his stride. It's, it's, it's not really an indictment of him that he said it. It's just, yeah, he's understandable. He's kind of in the motion of the thing. It's a big promo for him. It's a big time for him. So it's understandable the way it happened. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, on with the rest of the promo. Sure, sure. I should point out for the record, Stevie Ray, look at this. Take a look. We're talking about the rack, the torture rack of Lex Luger. And what about the choke slam of the giant? These are the things you're going to have to deal with tonight. What about the Harlem hangover? 
What about the heat seeker? What about the tower inferno? I don't see nobody talking about that. You think we came out here because it's time for rumper room, sucker? Well, let me tell you something. When me and my brother go to school, <laughs> the principal checks out. Lex Luger, Giant, get ready because we coming for the gold. That's Hulk Hogan's gold, and you two suckers are in the way. We're taking you out one at a time. Now, can you dig it? I thank you very much. I suspect, Sister Sherry, like many of the managerial uh, uh, people that I've uh, known, if uh, your men come up with a victory tonight, I'm assuming there's going to be a little party. There is going to be a great big party in Harlem tonight. We're going to pick our skirts up, and we're going to knock our legs all over the place, and we're going to... Celebrate the gold. Gene, yeah. there's a lot of knuckleheads out there have been looking over the Harlem Heat. But after the night, after we get the shot with Hulk Hogan, all the knucklehead suckers can lay the rest because we taking it all. Now, can you dig it? All right, Harlem Heat, Sister Sherry, I thank you. By the way, Bobby Heenan, you probably heard about that party. That's something I'm certain that might interest you. Right now, let's get you back inside the arena for more action here at Spring Stampede. Infamous absolute disaster aside... The rest of this promo is actually pretty good. Yeah. And it's impressive how well they managed to carry on with it. I think a lot of people, myself included, see that clip of Booker's uh, faux pas mm-hmm. and think that's where the promo ends. But it's not. It goes on and he even has to talk again. Yeah. If it were me, I would have wanted to go crawl in a hidden alcove somewhere for the rest of the night or the week or my life. <laughs> <laughs> But with Gene and Stevie carrying things forward and Sherry helping him calm down and refocus, Booker's able to recover well and even delivers a very strong ending to a segment he himself nearly derailed. Yeah. It's actually pretty amazing. It's definitely funny, funny hearing during Steve Ray's bit where he yells out, we want the gold again. Like yeah. he tried to, he tried to recover from that. Yeah. He, he starts like making hand motions to demonstrate the moves and going, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And I think that genuinely helps him. Mm-hmm. Like just, he's able to get past what he did and just get himself back in promo mode so that by the time it comes around to him again, he's able to just deliver his ending just great. Yeah. Yeah, poor Owen Hart has no one with him when he's doing the infamous yeah. your leg out of your leg. And that's like his ending line, too. Yeah. So it's like there's no recovering. There's, no. there's nothing you can do for that. But yeah, it's a good injury segment. It builds up a match nicely. It has historical notoriety for the part we just talked about. But yeah, it's on, on its own. That part aside, it's, it's, it is a good promo for building these up. Yeah, absolutely. I am a little bit sad that the original Disaster Piece audio is not available on Peacock for people to listen to, but I, I get why. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You really shouldn't put that up. <laughs> now, I am curious about that because Peacock, I guess, is not a thing in the UK and Europe, mm. or at least not fully. I don't know, but maybe it's in some regions, not others. Because I hear people that live in the UK talking about watching W Network. That's just still active there. So I'm wondering if if that change got done by WE and and it's everywhere or is it yeah or Peacock? yeah like is the original version still on the W network and Peacock changed it or did they change it before yeah yeah interesting question you can imagine if they had Hulk Hogan saying that word that'd be rough yeah <laughs> our fifth match is Chris Benoit with Woman. Versus the man of a thousand holds, Dean Malenko, for Malenko's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So, new champion Dean Malenko is taking on all comers at this point. He's fought such luminaries as Scotty Riggs on Nitro. All right. Yeah. 
Next in line is Benoit, who he has a mutual respect with, the story they really pushed through the commentaries and the storyline build up here. Benoit, of course, has an ongoing issue with Kevin Sullivan, which is uh, very cringy both then and now. Yeah, for different reasons, but yeah. Also worth noting quickly that Eddie Guerrero is the former champion coming out of here, and he's around, although he's injured, which will play a part in what happens later. Benoit gets the horseman theme as well, which is actually a little bit rare. Normally when he's doing singles matches, he gets that kind of weird theme that they gave him. I, I don't even know how to describe it, but you remember the normal Benoit theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't seem to fit him very well. Yeah. I guess they're building up the solidarity theme with that. Sure. Woman has a awesome, sharp-angled, studded red jacket. Mm-hmm. Looked like 80s music video kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I see that. Shitty Eastern kind of thing, yeah. Tony points out a nice touch to the Harlem Heat promo. Harlem Heat, who normally wear the same color outfit, were dressed differently, reflecting that they're both teammates and opponents in their Four Corners match. Yeah, I noticed that. Too. Good job on that. Yeah, yeah. Malenko comes out with the belt and no other frills, as is entirely proper for the Iceman. Yes. The two trade side headlock takeovers, head scissors, and arm drags until Benoit sends Malenko through the ropes to the floor, but Malenko lunges back in before Benoit can take advantage. They get a stare down. Malenko grabs an ankle lock, which Dusty calls an uncle situation. Sure, sure. Benoit grabs a crossface, then his own ankle lock, but Malenko is able to wrench harder on his, and Benoit can't hold. Dusty rambles at length about ankle holds and free ankles and hurt ankles until Tony just assures him he thinks he knows what Dusty means. <laughs> yeah, right. We've only got the building till midnight, he and quips. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. So good. Benoit finally escapes, and they collide on a charge as Benoit howls in pain. Benoit's right hand has blood on it. It looked like he had a bandage on a finger when he first came out, and it seems to have torn away during some part of the counter-wrestling. Oh, okay. He's clearly bothered by it for the rest of the match, but he rarely lets it actually impact any of his moves. You just catch him basically wiping it on his, thankfully, with the red part of his pants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the commentators worry about Scott Steiner. Heenan doubts that it's the first time that a Steiner has been arrested. <laughs> Test of strength goes Malenko's way, but he can't get a pin, and Benoit reverses to several holds, then pins for two. Malenko escapes the holds with a back suplex, smashes Benoit to the turnbuckle, and small packages him for two. Benoit chops Malenko so hard that Heenan asks if a shotgun went off. (laughs) It sounded like it, yeah. It did. That was loud. With his injured hand, by the way, which can't feel great. Mm, yeah. Malenko returns fire and puts on a crossface, then a camel clutch, bending Benoit far backwards. Malenko slaps on a short-arm scissors, as the commentators excellently discuss that each is being cautious, aware the person they're fighting could win off a single move. Mm-hmm. Benoit agonizingly lifts Malenko and suplexes him while still in the short-arm scissors. Holy crap. Really impressive spot, yeah. Dusty is amazed. Benoit back suplex and short clothesline earn two each. Abdominal stretch by Benoit, but Malenko keeps the arm up on the third try. Excellent shot of the packed Coliseum is poorly timed, as Malenko counters out right then for one. <laughs> Benoit lands vicious kicks and a neckbreaker for two, as Malenko gets the ropes. So, Benoit hooks the leg on a second attempt for another two. Benoit release snap suplex earns two two counts. 
Dusty notes woman screaming for Benoit and mispronounces Banshee so badly that Heenan thinks that he said Banjo. <laughs> Would fit the theme of the show, I guess. <laughs> I guess so, yes. <laughs> Malenko corner to corner whip, followed by a super fast clothesline, but not Heenan's 60 to 70 miles per hour fast. Benoit floats over a Malenko suplex and hits what the announcers variously call a what was that? I've never seen that, Heenan. Mm-hmm. A face down suplex, Dusty. A reverse face-down suplex, Heenan. A face-down belly-down suplex, Dusty. <laughs> and a reverse front suplex, Tony, trying to get this back to rationality. Yes. <laughs> I love this team. Mm-hmm. Jacqueline suddenly appears and attacks woman. Jimmy Hart appears, skips over the brawl, and steals the U.S. title as Benoit knocks Malenko down and hits his swan dive headbutt for two. Eddie Guerrero appears, arm in sling, and smartly dressed. Coming from a fancy restaurant, Eddie? Mm-hmm. He had a date earlier, yeah. He blocks Hart's escape as Doug Dellinger stands nearby, probably wondering if he'll get to mace somebody again. <laughs> Malenko suplexes Benoit over the ropes to the floor. That did not look like a fun fall to take. No. Malenko throws Benoit back in, but Arn Anderson shows up, attacks Malenko, and throws him in. Kevin Sullivan approaches with, I guess, a pool cue it looked like? Kind of, yeah. And Arn stares him down but then lets him by. Sullivan clocks Benoit in the head from behind, but Malenko charges and decks Sullivan, knocking him onto poor Guerrero. Malenko, exhausted, collapses by Benoit as Randy Anderson signals for the bell, ruling the match a no contest due to the chaos. Mm. Outside, Sullivan restrains Guerrero, and Jimmy Hart tosses the U.S. belt on Guerrero's shoulder, and he, Jacqueline, and Sullivan walk poor Eddie up the ramp, acting like he was part of their team all along, as a confused Guerrero tries to protest, unable to free himself due to his injured arm. The commentators discuss Eddie being set up here, though Dusty seems quite willing to believe he might be in on it anyway. You saw it play out in real time, then. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully Dean Malenko is more understanding. Back at the ring, Malenko recovers as woman checks on Benoit. Malenko comes over and helps wake Benoit up. Benoit shoves him, but Malenko calmly waits for him to realize that the match is over, and says, he was not supposed to be here. The commentators ask who the he Malenko mentioned is, but agree that Malenko and Benoit both clearly understand. As Malenko walks off, we get replays of the suplex to the floor, Jacqueline's attack, Sullivan's attack on Benoit, and the dungeon dragging Eddie away. Thoughts on this one? It's a really strong, technically sound clinic of a match, as you would imagine and expect between these two. They work holds really well, the transition holds really well, they're just striking really well. I've always been a fan of Benoit's bit where he throws you out the ropes and just kicks you when you get back. It's an extra motivation rather than just picking up and kicking him in the stomach once. Yeah. Like the sudden stop is kind of interesting to see on that one. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you just do clotheslines there of some kind. But just, yeah, just kick him in the stomach. Just really just stop all momentum as they're running that way. Yeah. I was going to mention that bit where he flips Malenko over while he's in the hold is amazing just to watch take place. Yeah. In like modern wrestling, you see spots like that occasionally where they'll do like a power bomb or something. Yes. But I don't know that I've really seen too many people do the suplex variation off of it. It's really impressive. Pretty uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good match. And unfortunately, all this nonsense has to happen at the end of it. We have yeah. to have all these run-ins, these attacks. Let's be honest, Benoit should have won by DQ, right? Probably. And and to be clear, on the show itself, it's a little bit unclear. I think someone eventually says no contest, but I think I actually took no contest from like looking it up on 
a site somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So. No, officially it's listed that, but yeah, it definitely isn't no contest because no, it wasn't like they were both attacked. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, no. I will correct you. Aaron Anderson attacks Dean Malenko. Oh well, yeah. But the match goes on after that, so it so yeah. it didn't end. Right. Based on when it ends, it should be a DQ win for Benoit. Right. Right. I don't mind this stuff necessarily happening on the show. I wish we'd gotten a straight finish, like have Malenko, you know, do some sort of pin escape thing if he's going to beat Benoit. <laughs> you know, if you're not having to take the title switch just yet, so have him beat Benoit in some way, and then afterwards have all this stuff happen. Yeah, do it as like if you want to continue their angle, do a really close Malenko win. Yeah, I think is appropriate, and then then have all this craziness happen outside. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a shame that this match is so good, and then all that has to happen. It really that's the last the last taste in your mouth, so to speak, is that. Yeah. Other than that, though, I would say, holy crap, what a great match! Mm-hmm, yeah. These two somehow managed to mix incredible, complex technical holds and counters, brutal strikes, innovative power moves, and strength feats, and tie it all together with a story that still left you feeling like, despite all the brutality, they respected each other rather than hating each other. Mm-hmm. It was intense in a competitive sense rather than in a deeply personal sense which was quite a neat feat having emotion in a match without making it actually a good guy bad guy thing yeah but just about proving yourself the victor in pure competition a ferocity born not of hate but of desire for greatness Mm -hmm. yeah excellently done i do agree though i wish it could have had a full ending because it was epic up to those final moments yeah but the no contest finish i do feel like serves to throw in some intriguing storyline possibilities at least. So even if it isn't my preference for an ending, I can forgive it. The match up to that though, pure brilliance. Yeah. I just, like I said, I wish there was more disconnect between all the shenanigans and nonsense they needed for this overlapping like horseman story where Arn supports Benoit the horseman, but also annoyed that he's gotten the kind of self business involved in their business, which is why he lets them buy. Yeah. Because he, he wants Benoit to take care of his own business. He's not trying to step in the way like that. So there's a lot of neat layers here and attempts at doing like story stuff. It's just, it takes away from the match a little for me as the whole package mm-hmm. because it all lumped together like that. Yeah, you, you can look at it and be like, okay, at least the angles are interesting yeah. that they're involving here, but there's still that little, uh, I wish we got the full match first. Mm-hmm, exactly. Obviously, coming off of this, we would pivot back to the Benoit Sullivan story. They would do it by way of having Benoit fight Ming, as we saw on Slambury, and they have a return match on the next show. Basically, Ming is the enforcer for Sullivan, so it makes sense that he's essentially making Benoit fight these trials to get to him. And obviously, you mentioned what Dimlenko is doing earlier. He's fighting Jeff Jarrett. All right. Our sixth match is Kevin Nash with six, Ted DiBiase, and referee Nick Patrick versus Rick Steiner for the Outsiders, Nashes and Halls, WCW World Tag Team Championship. The referee is Evil Nick Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not a good sign when the referee is mentioned in the entrance for one of the competitors. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe just a little bit. So Nash and Hall are the tag champions, having won them in late 96. However, the division is highly contested with all these teams that we're seeing them both on this show and not on this show, like the Two Faces of Fear, for instance. Twice during the title reign, the Outsiders would lose their titles at various shows, but would have the titles returned to them via technicalities because Bischoff was technically running things. Right. 
which seemed like a conflict of interest that should have come up way sooner than it did. <laughs> Following the last time that happened, he was overruled and put in suspension. He's supposedly contesting that in court, which means he's allowed to be on the show somehow, which is kind of weird if you think about it. <laughs> I guess he's still an honor talent, maybe that's the idea. He, yeah, he just has no actual authority. Right. As far as typically with the Steiners and Hall and Nash, they would be an attack on Rick Steiner on the previous show, which would affect that pay-per-view match they are involved in. So it's only fitting now that they reverse things, and now Scott Steiner is the one being attacked, albeit via Doug Dillinger, the <laughs> baddest of all bad <laughs> apparently. <laughs> one thing that kind of gets me this is so at Uncensored, this whole thing where the interviewer won this match, and they could challenge for any title. Mm-hmm. They're not restricted. Right. For one thing, they already have, like, two of the titles anyways. It's kind of funny they need to have this. So I think they try to say in the commentary that that's why Nick Patrick is still the referee for this. Like, they have that much power. But then he also had to request Nick Patrick. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion around that. Yeah. And this angle side, I just don't know why they didn't just... If they had to rebound with Hall not being there, as mentioned... Why not just have Nash and Six together? Yeah, I can see that. Which they would actually do later in this year, in fact. they would, At one point, they had to sub out Six for Nash, who was injured, I believe. So they, they invoked the NWO version of the Freebird rule, let him be co-champion with them. Yeah. But yeah, so now we have this weird situation where we have a singles match for a tag title. <laughs> which I guess is kind of paid off, I think, about a couple years later, where they have a tag match where the world title's on the line. Yeah, yeah. Not evens out, really. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) As we start the entrances, Tony nicely sends best wishes to crew member Moses Williams, undergoing treatment for kidney stones. Heenan snarks that Moses owes him five bucks. Yeah, that sounds about right. NWO theme count, one. Nash makes his entrance with his half of the tag belts, accompanied by Six, DiBiase, and match ref Nick Patrick. Nick Patrick is wearing a sleeveless ref shirt and a single glove, which is a bit of an odd look. A bit, yeah. Everybody gives Wolfpack signs on the way to the ring, and Patrick says something about knocking somebody out. Yeah. Steinerized. Rick Steiner comes out with his awesome bulldog jacket mm-hmm. and his less awesome dog collar. Yeah. Six and DiBiase leave the ring as Rick enters, and he runs around as Nash regards him coolly. Nash wins a slugfest with a knee strike and batters Steiner with a big clothesline and big swinging blows as Patrick insincerely admonishes him to get out of the corner. Steiner gets a boot up on a corner charge and Steiner lines Nash down and Patrick looks sympathetic. Belly to belly by Steiner gets zero as Nash is in the ropes. It looked a little bit scary. It seemed like Steiner was going for his overhead one but realized just in time it wasn't going to work that way with the very tall Nash. Yeah. Yeah, just fine, but you do have this moment, oh wait, something's not quite right about that. No, right, I can see that, yeah. Heenan says that Steiner could belly-to-belly an L-1011 airliner. (laughs) Steiner power slam gets two and a half, and Tony says the count was slow. It was, just a bit. Steiner lands punches and bobs and weaves around Nash's haymakers, but Six pulls down the ropes on a Steiner line and Steiner spills out. Patrick graciously accepts Six's excuses and checks on... Nash, while Six beats Steiner up. Back in, Nash sidewalk slam gets two. Nash chokes Steiner, and Patrick lectures Mm -hmm. him. 
So DiBiase takes over. Then Nash drops on Steiner's back. Dusty completely fails at making some kind of point about Scott Steiner's absence and sounds like he's saying that Nick Patrick would not be the ref if Scott was there, which just no. (laughs) That was clearly already a condition. Yeah. Nash's jackknife powerbomb gets two and nine-tenths. Nash and Patrick are both stunned. Nash stands on Rick's head as Rick screams for Scott. Nash tries the jackknife again, but Rick punches him in the balls. <laughs> Patrick sees that and amusingly waggles his finger at Steiner, but why not just DQ him, especially if you're favoring Nash? Yeah, seems fair. It is hilarious, though. Yeah. You can maybe explain it based on what happens later in the match to some extent, but it still feels a little awkward. Steiner up top, and he hits a jumping bulldog for two and nine-tenths. Tony, though, says that Nash didn't even kick out, and Patrick just pretended that he did. Steiner line, and another, and another. But Six spin kicks Steiner from the apron, and Nash clotheslines Steiner hard. Six takes forever, taking a turnbuckle pad off, and DiBiase has to go help. (laughs) Patrick actually looks uncertain as he sees what's going on. With the turnbuckle pad off, Nash lifts Steiner on his shoulder and drops him face-first on the exposed turnbuckle. Patrick checks on Steiner, but Nash picks Steiner up again, and Patrick visibly questions him. Nash does it again, and Patrick and DiBiase both argue with him. I don't care, Nash says. You're with us. I'll tell you when it's enough. He does it again as DiBiase walks out, and Patrick backs off, afraid to protest, when Nash yells at him. Again, and Nash hits the jackknife powerbomb. Patrick hesitates, and Six yells at him to count. Patrick counts one, then pauses, but Nash or Six, I couldn't tell which, yells at him again, and he completes the two and three to give Nash the win. Patrick gets out of the ring and walks up the ramp, and Nash and Six look angry and confused in the ring. NWO theme count, two. (laughs) The commentators expressed their surprise that Patrick and DiBiase seem to have had enough of the NWO. Tony goes a little too far in suddenly saying that Patrick was trying to call the match down the middle, he to was, some extent. No. He, he was not at all. <laughs> and Tony himself had pointed that out multiple times. <laughs> right. But it's otherwise a pretty good discussion, actually. Thoughts on this one? It's definitely a good hard-hitting match in spurts. The problem for me overall is that because they sort of double back because of the Hall situation and the storyline they sort of brush together, there's definitely more of a an angle mm-hmm. segment than a match segment. I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah. They have a, say, a five-minute actual match, maybe. Mm-hmm. Fair. And then they do the way too prolonged cutting the ropes bit. <laughs> because poor Six can't figure out how to use wire cutters, I guess. Yeah. Whatever the scissors he's using, it just cannot work. And DiBiase's got to help him. It's a good story they're telling, I think. Mm-hmm. Nick Patrick is willing to cheat for them. He's willing to let them do a lot of stuff they shouldn't do. But the brutality of it is what throws them off. They're literally trying to end Steiner's career here. Yeah, because in storyline, they had attacked him the month before, and supposedly his injured ear was affected. That's why they were dropping him the way they were. Mm, okay. They're certainly aiming, trying to drop him on his injured ear rather than just his face. I gotcha. Yeah, so I'm torn, because as a match, it's fairly short. Again, it's, it's kind of funny, because of the angle bit, it has the same problem that the Medusa-Kirohokuto match has. Right. 
basically let's do all this stuff in the little time we have. But then it gets all that extra time for the story bit, which is good. So yeah, as a match, it's not super great, but the way of getting this longer story told, I think it works well. Yeah. In contrast to the prior match, I think this one, in order to get the story across properly, mm-hmm. had to interrupt the actual match. Yeah, sure. The other one, you probably could have had an actual ending and then told your story just as well. Mm-hmm. But this one, you really actually had to have the match interrupted by it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's much more angle than match, but for what it was, it was quite good. Steiner and Nash landed hard blows and big power moves on each other and gave a strong power-centric performance. And Nash's insufferable confidence and constant smirk worked really well paired with the angry Rick Steiner. Mm -hmm. It made it even easier to root for Rick. The NWO dissension angle is pretty good. Patrick actually does a great job subtly expressing discomfort with the turnbuckle tactic from the opening moments that they start working on it. Yeah. You can see like his body language change right going from aha this is fun i'm with my buddies yeah to wait what's going on here right yeah i think the only thing in his performance that would maybe be better is in his hesitation at counting the pinfall at the end i get what they're going for that he's uncomfortable with letting them win that way but he also was uncomfortable letting them hurt rick steiner more so i think it actually would have been nice if he did a fast count yes As a means of expressing sympathy. I was going to say the same thing, yeah. I do recognize that could be a complex thing to get across properly and not make it look like he's cheating for them. Right. I could see, like, looking away in disgust and just do a fast count and walk in the rolling out, for instance, yeah. Just because the delay actually makes it worse for Steiner. No, exactly, yeah, because if he doesn't count the pinfall, they're going to hit him again or something else to him again. I did feel like DiBiase's objections felt like maybe they came a little bit more out of nowhere than Patrick's. You don't see the discomfort Mm. with him, and he actually has to help set up the turnbuckle action. Right, yeah. I kind of wonder if maybe he wasn't supposed to do that, but Six just couldn't get it done. Oh, no, I I definitely, yeah. I I definitely think that's what happened. Yeah, so I think that's just where reality, unfortunately, interferes with the (laughs) storyline a little bit, that they just can't make it happen. So either Patrick or DiBiase has to muddy the waters a little bit, and it's better they chose DiBiase for that. Yeah. I could see him... If he could come off more begrudging with it, like have six in his understandably real visible anger at himself at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Yell at DiBiase to help him and him maybe act uncomfortable with it. In the way it plays out, he just does it just with no yeah. qualms or hesitation because they're trying to get the story through. He's probably hoping, oh, maybe they won't put the camera at me during it and they'll miss that part. Yeah. Yeah. I get the feeling he's not supposed to be involved in that and therefore it would not feel as weird when he protests later. 100%. Yeah. So, overall, not a full match, but at least a really interesting angle with some intriguing possibilities for the NWO story. I still would have liked an actual tag match, I think. Mm -hmm. You could still do the six doing the removal of the turnbuckle pad and all that stuff if it was an actual tag. Yeah, I would have had six wrestle match, find a way to take Scott or Rick out so they can do the prolonged beatdown part of it. Still end it exactly the same way. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, considering the curveballs that life threw at them in the process on this. I think they did a very, very respectable job with this. Yeah, I can see that. As mentioned earlier, Hollywood seemingly faced no repercussion for no showing a bunch of shows as tag champion, and a pay-per-view, in fact. And he'd up in the six-man tag match setup somewhat on this show. Right. Involving Flair, Piper, and Green. Which was a very fun match. It was, yes. The Steiners would segue on the next Nitro into a feud with the Dungeon of Doom, which is still a thing in 1997. <laughs> yes, it has, it has no one supernatural in it anymore, but no, it still exists. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's still happening. 
Svidi Biasi, he would formally leave the group uh, a couple of shows later and then would reappear in August uh, as the manager for a face, putting his turn from leaving the group to being a face now. Okay. We cut backstage to Mean Gene Okerlund, who is with Lex Luger and The Giant. Tony, I don't know what to tell you. I do know that I've been standing by here back in the locker room area. We do have a monitor, Lex Luger and The Giant, myself, taking a look and seeing what the NWO is capable of doing. And on the subject of the NWO, the target Hollywood Hulk Hogan, the WCW heavyweight title of the, the world. These two men are going to be in a four quarters match involving the Harlem Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray. These men are not in a great frame of mind tonight. And I know the Giant, uh, as a ex-NWOer, you certainly have got some definite thoughts on this particular match. I have some definite thoughts on this match. And I know from the very beginning, this is Hulk Hogan's plan. He's trying to put brother against brother and friend against friend. But what Hulk Hogan didn't ever count on and couldn't ever imagine in his life was the fact that Lex and I are friends. We train together, we eat together, we ride together, we wrestle together, and we are a team. And when you're that much of a team, you can understand. You can look each other in the eyes, and I know that tonight if I have to wrestle you and you beat me in the ring then you deserve the title shot against Hulk Hogan. If I beat Lex, then I deserve the title shot. And if Harlem Heat beats Lex or myself, then they deserve a title shot. Right now, you've got four athletes who are going to go out there and give everything that they have from the bottom of their shoes to the top of their head. And believe you me, I am not quitting. I am going at this full force. If I have to tear off both Harlem Heat's heads to do it, I will. It's relentless. All right, the mantra in professional wrestling, the WCW heavyweight title, Lex Luger. Nobody knows the importance of that title, what it means, both in terms of self-gratification and prestige in the wrestling world. We all know, after watching what NWO has done for the past year, he's been the hell and back again with the NWO. He understands it deep in the pit of his stomach. We've all been made sick by what's gone on. WCW is here to claim what's theirs. This is the shot at Hollywood Hogan. He is the emblem for the NWO. The Giant knows it, I know it, and Harlem Heat knows it. This is for everything that we stand for as athletes and competitors in World Championship Wrestling. We're here to put some prestige back in the name World Championship Wrestling. We're sick and tired of what's been going on. And the Giants and myself are a cohesive unit. We're not here to tear each other apart. We're here to accomplish something. And that is the one goal. And that's to get a shot, the chance at the world title and bring it back home where it belongs. And Harlem Heat, you've made your feelings very clear. Last Monday Night Nitro, when you attacked the Giant and I, we know what we face when we go out to the ring. The intensity level is going to be high. And Mean Gene, we are ready. They are ready indeed, both physically and mentally. Lex Luger and the Giant, a four corners match. First pin, first submission, walks away with the spoils. Cody, back to you. I really liked these promos. Yeah, they're good. Luger was good, establishing a tone of reverence for the title and for WCW and a desire to restore what had been lost. But man, 
giant knocked it out of the park with an honestly eloquent statement on the power of the bonds of friendship and the inability of Hogan to tear him and Luger apart. He does a really, really good job, and I love the largely calm tone that he keeps through most of it. It fits the thoughtful ideas that he's expressing, and it also strikes a different kind of tone than the norm for big match promos. Mm-hmm. Great build to the match here, I thought. Yeah, it was interesting hearing Giant be so sedate but steady in this yeah. kind of thing. He manages to be quiet but not boring. Yes. It's an impressive performance, and and they managed to get across some fairly complex ideas as far as like what they need to accomplish tonight, but what it means for WCW, what it means for them personally. Yeah. They both do an excellent job with this yeah. and have an interesting tone to it. I would say it's kind of funny looking back at it that Lurie is all about the reverence, the world title, and the respect it deserves. When, if you remember last time he was world champion, he was full-blown heel. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was chauntingly cheating to win and everything. But he's not, you know, spray-painting the title. That's true, yeah. <laughs> he values the belt. Yeah, <laughs> Let's okay. put it that way. But yeah, no, I thought he did a good job. It's almost a shame that they didn't reverse the promo, because I think Giant is slightly better than his, mm-hmm. because he keeps that, like said, that slow, steady, serious delivery, and Luger has to go up and down a couple of times. Yeah. For a dramatic effect, it's not comedic, but I think it's more than Giant does. I think you can see it maybe as that Luger's giving you the extra intensity push that's leading you into the actual match. Mm, okay. Like Giant's getting across the storyline, so they want him calmer, so the fans really get the chance to think through what he's saying. And then Luger's like, hey guys, the match is about to start. Get excited now. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I can kind of see that. So I think it, the two work together rather well for yeah. me. So our seventh match is Booker T versus Stevie Ray, both accompanied by Sister Sherry, versus Lex Luger versus The Giant in a four corners tag match for the right to face Hollywood Hogan for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So to establish the rules for this match, they're a bit strange. Uh It's contested like a tag match. So two men legal in the ring at all times with two others on the apron, able to be tagged in, and one fall to a finish. However, either man in the ring can tag either man on the apron rather than being restricted to teams. So Booker might end up against Stevie Ray, or Giant might end up against Luger, despite them both ostensibly being teams with each other. It's kind of weird rules, and there's all sorts of questions that they raise. Like, Mm -hmm. do Booker and Stevie Ray even have to fight each other if they're tagged in against each other, for instance? Or couldn't one guy just let himself be pinned if his buddy's against him? Yeah, he could. (laughs) I always felt these rules were kind of shoddy for single fall matches. The second question, at least, would be resolved if this was an elimination match. Yeah. But that's not the case in this match. Mm -hmm. Anyway, on to the actual match. Two different teams would briefly dethrone the outsiders of tag tiles, only have them then taken away by Eric Bischoff's legal corporate wrangling. One of those teams would be Lexigo and the Giant. Okay. A couple months back, that happened. They would use their loss to set up the uncensored match, which unfortunately got the NWO have access to challenge the titles again. The other thing that happens, of course, Bischoff was suspended. So now the vague sort of nebulous championship committee, whom you never see, are making the rules for everything. They decided to set this match up. And if you're wondering how Harlem Heat, excuse me, how the Harlem Heat, <laughs> if I say it correctly, qualify for this match, I don't know. 
there's no like match. They exist as a tag team. Yeah. <laughs> there's no like match where they fight, you know, like the face of the fear or public enemy or something and go, whichever team wins, it gets to be in this match. It's just, well, Harlem Heat's going to be in this four corners match. Like, yeah. Okay. Sure. This is a show where we have a singles match for tag titles and we have a tag team match for a world title shot for a single person. Yes. It's a little confusing, this show. Slight, slightly, slightly confusing, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Harlem Heat enter first, accompanied by Sister Sherry. As mentioned earlier, they're dressed differently, Booker in gold and Stevie Bray in white, to highlight that they're not actually teamed with each other tonight. Wait, is that why Booker T said he wanted the gold? He wanted the gold outfit? <laughs> Could be. Okay. Heenan points out that Sherry's got a two out of four chance of managing the person who challenges for the title, so that's a good position for her to be in. Luger and Giant are out next to Luger's excellent catchy theme, as Giant does not have a theme song at all now that he's not in the dungeon or the NWO. Still don't get that, that idea. Yeah, he really should have gotten one at some point. Yeah. I'm sure Jimmy Hart could have found some song to rip off for him. Right, yeah. Some wonderful pinwheel sparklers go off along the Old West set as they walk by. It's good to know that the Pyro guys had some real fun tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heenan points out both of them are former champs, and Dusty notes that though this looks like a tag match, it's not about tag wrestling, and getting the golds should mean more to the competitors than cohesiveness in this match. Heenan wishes that Sting was in the match, and the commentators discuss Sting's desire to get back at Hogan more than to get the title. Heenan says Sting likely blames Hogan for turning fans and friends against him. Luger and Booker start, and Booker tells the camera that Stevie's going to take care of the giant. Booker counters early holds with some strikes, and the Luger selling begins. Mm -hmm. Though Booker is actually nearly as loud in this one. He is, yeah. Luger dodges an arcing kick, presses Booker high, and dumps him to the mat. I swear both of these guys are miked. (laughs) Booker pokes Luger's eyes and tags Stevie. Luger tags Giant before long. In a bit of a nice touch, Luger actually goes to stand in a different corner than Giant was in, kind of, again, highlighting there's not actually teams here. Yeah. Stevie lands strikes, but Giant hits a massive, roaring clothesline, and Stevie rolls out. Booker charges, but Giant press drops him. Booker and Stevie argue, and Sherry tells them to stay focused. Luger drums on the turnbuckle to charge up the crowd, but Stevie sneakily tags Luger. Luger and Giant hesitate, but do a quick sequence ending in an attempted Luger slam, and Giant falls on top for two. Since there's no rule requiring a fight, Tony does at least nicely call back to their made-the-best-man-win kind of promo as an explanation. Exactly, yeah. Giant and Luger share a look, then tag the Heat in against each other. Luger cheekily riles up the crowd to cheer the Heat conflict. (laughs) <laughs> really good it, at first the crowd's not sure how to react and then luger starts drumming on the turnbuckle and walking up and down the apron and pumping his fist and the <laughs> crowd gets cheering big time excellent crowd work with luger on this one yeah he knows a really proud really. sure tony explicitly says that they could just tag right back out making clear that there is no rule against that but the heat do fight briefly until booker leapfrogs stevie and the two tap hands and taunt the crowd i guess it Either was an act, or they really quickly worked out their aggression. Yeah. Heenan says one should sneak up and knock the other one out now, recounting once firing his own brother. (laughs) But Booker tags Luger. Surprisingly, Luger sneaks in the kick on a test of strength. 
a turnbuckle ram, but Tony points out that they've covered the previously exposed turnbuckle back up. I would hope. Yeah. Stevie fights back, and he and Booker work over Luger, but he tags Giant to decimate Booker. Heenan says, Giant is young and will get even bigger. Does he think that Giant is a child? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure he understands how that works. He's in his 20s, dude. (laughs) Giant destroys Booker, but he dodges an elbow drop, and Stevie trades in without a tag to take over while Giant's down. The Heat double-team Giant. Heaton proposes bribery instead. (laughs) A Stevie pump kick and Booker Harlem sidekick can't knock Giant down, so Booker lands rapid kicks to the knee. It was impressive the height that Booker got on the Harlem sidekick, where he actually manages to get up to Giant's head with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just wow. His vertical leap is never disappointing. Giant dodges a Stevie leg drop and big boots him, then tags Luger, who gets two off a slam and a set of elbow drops. Stevie pulls Luger to the turnbuckle, and Booker has a go, but almost gets racked. But Stevie saves and suplexes Luger for two for Booker. Booker knee drop gets two, as does a Harlem sidekick. Booker and Stevie trade off wearing Luger down, and earn two with a Stevie clothesline and a Booker scissor kick. Booker up top, and Stevie launches him at Luger, but Luger dodges. And nicely, goes for the wrong corner because, again, they are not stable in this match. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Booker tags Stevie, but Luger tags Giant just in time. Tony notes that Luger needed that, but he might have just cost himself a tag title shot. Uh, Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> so close to making a really good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand the confusion with oh, the match no, rules, though. I mean, that's it's really, it mixes you up. Giant destroys both Harlem Heat members and sends Booker to the floor, then signals for the choke slam on a day Stevie but pauses, thinking. Slowly, he turns and walks to a confused Luger. Tag me, Giant says. Tag me. Luger holds out his hand, and Giant slaps it, tagging Luger in and giving up a world title shot in favor of his friend. Luger, stunned, puts Stevie in the torture rack, and Giant stops a returning Booker T., as Stevie submits, giving Luger the win and the title shot. A grateful Luger gives Giant a big hug, and they celebrate, Giant pointing at Luger, indicating that he deserves the title shot. Heenan says, that's either friendship or stupidity. (laughs) Why not both? Yeah. Dusty praises Giant's selflessness, and looks forward to the fight between Luger and Hogan. Tony calls it a defining moment for the Giant. Heenan sneaks in a, what a dummy. (laughs) <laughs> As we cut to the next segment. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? It's a tricky one because the rules, as you mentioned, are just so convoluted. It's one of the matches where you want to match his rules to highlight and accent the match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no DQ math lets you do spots you can do normally. False guy never lets you, you know, fight to the crowd, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, it's a bit where they definitely wrestle like a tag match, but then at the occasion I remember the tagging other people in thing and the single pinfall thing. Mm-hmm. They kind of do two obligatory spots of, hey, we got tagged in against each other and then just contested like a regular tag match. Yeah, before. exactly. I had the same problem I really had with the triangle match from the Dragon 95, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Also went Luger. It's just, yeah, the match rules kind of got in the way because the matches would start and stop because they had tagged people out. kind of wish they either done more or less with the premise, I would say. 
Because if you do more with it, you really sort of brace here's this crazy match we're in where anyone can win, but there's tagging. Or if you just not done the stipulation, mm-hmm. just just say it's a tag match or first pinfall, whoever wins the will gets a title shot. Yeah, that's that's really what I would have suggested because I think the match rules are strange enough that if you dedicated yourself to this more, it would have just made it more confusing and made it a bit of a mess. Yeah. This match would have made more sense if it was actually just four individual wrestlers. That said, they have plenty of good spots in here, so it's not like it's a really terrible match. It's just they have to work around the rules, and you have to sort of wrap your head around how things play out. Yeah, I would say I I really actually enjoyed this a lot, mm-hmm. but in spite of the gimmick, yeah, that's the rather than because it. of the gimmick. Yeah, sure. The four corners rules are just weird, as we discussed before. And yeah, the four just pretty much dispense with them after a perfunctory partners versus each other segment, and then just pretty much run the whole thing like a regular tag match, which was exactly the right choice. In that mode, though, they do spectacularly well. Giant and Luger come off as tremendously powerful, but risk being undone by superior Harlem Heat teamwork and a bit of trickery. Yeah. Nicely, Harlem Heat actually get to overwhelm each of them in turn over the course of the match, making clear their tag dominance, even against two former world champions. Hmm. Giant and Luger really steal the show, though, with some tremendous acting and crowd interaction over and above their huge strikes and power moves. Luger in particular has the crowd right where he wants them the whole time and gets them to roar at many points. Yeah. And Giant, what an excellent performance in those final moments. Mm -hmm. The opportunity to win, the slow realization that he didn't want the chance for himself but for his friend instead, Mm -hmm. and the selfless, steady tag me. Like Tony said, it's a defining character moment for him right there. It really would have worked just as well or better as a straight tag match, like you said. Yeah. But I do love how they use the rule that the one who gets the pin gets the title shot. They expertly played that part up for maximum impact and character development and made it a great segment overall. Yeah. I think totally agreement with you. Just make it a tag match, but keep that one rule. Keep yeah, that one absolutely. difference and you're good. Mm-hmm. They had an uphill battle making the match work with the complications. I thought they did a pretty good job with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The gimmick's not contributing, the gimmick's risking taking away, but they handle it well enough that it doesn't. Yeah, and lesser hand, I can definitely see it being a mess yes. to get there. Yep. So Luger would, in fact, get his world title match in August. <laughs> it's a bit of a time gap. No, no rush, guys. There's nothing important here. Maybe it was. It's it's a title match in the next month that starts with an A. Oh, okay. You know, because he won it in April, so he has mm-hmm. to yeah. take it in the next day. Yeah. I want to get the vivid doubt. Maybe it is addressed throughout. Like Luger will do promos saying, well, I want my title shot, and maybe Hogan will try to avoid it. I mean, unfortunately, more recently, it's Hogan not working this summer. Yeah, yeah. Probably to do some movie, if I were to guess. Most likely. I don't know for sure, but he probably shot one of those Devil's Mountain movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those are around this time, I know. Yeah. As for LM Heat, they would go from competing for a world title shot to being in the dark match at Slamboree against yeah. Public Enemy. <laughs> wow, that is a very sudden drop. Yeah. It's a reverse DDP. It is. It's the reverse DDP. It's yeah. even worse, though. You're not even on the show. <laughs> DDP at least got to be on Spring Stampede 94. We cut to an ad for Slamboree. Hey. I'm Bobby the Brain Heenan. Dustin Rose, the American Dream. Larry Zabisco. WCW's got a lot of problems right now. Too many guys selling their soul. How are you going to stop the NWO? We need a leader. Like a piper. Sting. Lex Luger. I'm a Dallas Station. 
slamboree. Go get Hulk Hogan. Sooner or later, they have to be an Indian. It's WCW Slamboree, Sunday, May 18th, live and only on pay-per-view. Call your cable or satellite company to order now. I thought this was a great, serious ad for a show for once, as opposed to the kind of comedic bits that they usually use in the past. Mm Mm-hmm. Zabisco, Rhodes, and Heenan all do a great job with their bits, building up the seriousness of the NWO threat and the need for someone to face them. And this is a slickly produced package that really worked to get me excited to watch Slambree, even though I already have. Yes. And even though I already know it's not the finale of the NWO angle. No. That says a lot about how good this was. I particularly liked uh, Zabisco's too many guys selling their souls line. Mm-hmm. His delivery on that was just great. Yeah, he was really good there, yeah. There is some ironic foreshadowing in Dusty's last line, though. (laughs) He says, sooner or later, there has to be an ending. There wasn't an ending when there should have been at Starcade 97, and that's when the whole thing started to unravel. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's that's pretty fair point, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was good. It works as a general promo for a show. It has nothing to do with the actual show itself, other than just, let's fight the NWO. Yeah. So it's good on its own, but it doesn't really connect to the theme of it which but it's still good yeah the, the way it does kind of connect is it's kind of like there's a bit of a theme on slambury 97 of wcw trying to coalesce mm-hmm. yeah and and find a way to win over the nwo and so you get a little touches of that but yeah they don't really end up exploring who's going to be the leader right right yeah i kind of hope the next show i know it's not but the next show's promo one is them again, but like more Hagger and more Nord that didn't happen already. <laughs> that would be funny. Like, come on, we need a leader already. Get on it. <laughs> get get like three or four in and Kenan Valley says, screw it, I'll just do it. Yeah. <laughs> Our final match is the Macho Man Randy Savage with Miss Elizabeth versus Diamond Dallas Page with Kimberly Page in a no disqualification match. Referee for this one is Mark Curtis. DP would famously turn down the NWO on a big Nitro segment where he would pretend to take the shirt and then give a nice diamond cutter to Scott Hall. Yes. And run to the crowd in a great bit. Brilliant, brilliant moment. Yeah. He sort of holds the arm for a second longer just to pull him in for the move, mm-hmm. which is nice. This would lead to Uncensored where they would do a semi-shoot promo where Savage annoyed at this. Savage basically becomes the guy who's going after DP. For whatever reason, he, he's decided I'm going to take care of this guy. Right. I guess you guys are busy doing other stuff. <laughs> or in Hall's case, not being here. Yeah. He uh, calls him out and he, as the shoot part is by revealing that Kimberly Page is his wife and not just the lady who's a nitro dancer slash former manager. Okay. He gets annoyed at that for bringing about his personal life into everything. They would also get attacked, which would definitely be a motivating factor for him post-uncensored. He would challenge Savage to a match and that would initially run away from the situation, but eventually the match would get signed for this show. Due to the volatility of both men, they made a no-DQ match. Okay. NWO theme count three. We cut backstage, and Savage walks along the halls with Miss Elizabeth, talking about how he's going to murder the bum, and he's going to party with 14 or 22 women. <laughs> Though he asked Liz if there will be a problem with that. She says, nah. <laughs> now, he knows no-DQ doesn't mean he's not He's still liable for murder, right? Yeah, yeah, you you would think so. I hope he knows that. I hope so, too. He proposes Slim Jims for everybody and says DDP is going down, but he isn't sure which way it is to the ring. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that bit. (laughs) Yeah. Heenan notes Nick Patrick standing in the background, still displeased at one point. Oh, yeah. 
Savage and Liz arrive at the actual entrance ramp and walk on down to the ring, with Savage slapping hands with the fans like he's a face. Heenan points out Savage seems to be taking this lightly and not preparing properly for a fighter like Paige. I appreciate Savage's great entrance work, but man, the NWO theme played for a long time on this one. Yeah, it did. We cut backstage to Mean Gene, who is with DDP. Tony flubs the line a little, at first starting to say he's throwing to DDP rather than to Gene, Mm -hmm. before correcting, and Gene jokes, it's close enough. Yeah, right. (laughs) This is the biggest night for DDP. Let's go with that tonight. That's close enough, Tony. Yes, DDP is with me. Diamond Dallas Page, come on in. No disqualification. The Macho Man Randy Savage with Liz in his corner. And tonight, there's no tomorrow. Tonight, it's going to be you with Kimberly in your corner for all of the spoils. You know, Gino, sometimes in life, a man's got to stand up for what really matters. Or else, you're just passing through. Savage, you stepped into my real world and you found out what really matters to me. By doing it, when you did it, you stepped over the line. So tonight, you're mine. All right, Kimberly, the wife, you're going to be in your husband's corner tonight, and you know what this is all about if anybody does. Yeah, Gene, everybody's been talking about how this is the most important match in Paige's life and that the odds are stacked against him. Well, all I've been hearing at home is about how he's going to get Randy Savage for what he did to me. Now, normally, I like him to keep a positive attitude about everything, but rage is a powerful emotion. And in this case, I think I'm just going to let it ride. Oh, 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 I like that. His rage is going to even the odds. Diamond Dallas Page and Kimberly with her input, her take on it all. Right now, let's get you back to David Pinzer. No, but beg your pardon. Back to you, Tony. Nicely, after giving Tony a jab for a little flub, Gene flubs himself, throwing to Dave Penzer instead of Tony. Penzer isn't even doing the intros for this one. It's going to be Michael Buffer. Yeah, I just really wanted to talk to Dave, just personally. (laughs) DDP's a little bit excited in this build-up to what I'd certainly call his biggest match thus far. Mm. So he stumbles a little bit over his lines. But he still gets across the story and emotion quite well. And if anything, the stumbles actually help with that. Yeah. In character, he'd have butterflies too. Kimberly does a nice job supporting the story as well and has some really good steely facial expressions during mm-hmm. it. Yeah. She just has a solid stare at the camera. Mm-hmm. Looks very uh, serious and driven. Yeah, it's interesting because DP gets a lot of credit, understandably, for being a good promo. But yeah, I thought Kimberly did a really good job here as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was definitely prepared well for this and she delivered the right emotion for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it worked really well just getting the story across quickly. If you hadn't watched all the Nitros, you wouldn't necessarily know the whole story. This tells you the emotion going into it. Yeah, even not having watched everything leading up to this mm. the way that you do for our shows, yeah. I got enough that I'm like, okay, I get the gist of what's going on here mm. and why DDP is ticked off. Yeah. They barely give Michael Buffer audio at first. He goes over Kimberly's recent appearance in Playboy and Paige's efforts to defend her honor, his honor, and his whole career. He says Paige represents the WCW. Of course he does. Oddly, we don't get a buffer ring intro for Randy Savage. Oh, yeah. 
There is a point in Paige's promo where the arena noise suddenly cuts entirely out, Mm -hmm. and we only hear Paige with no background at all. So I'm betting that's where Buffer was actually doing the Savage Ring intro. Oh. And they just realized that would interfere with the promo they were showing, so they cut it out. Buffer gives us his let's get ready to rumble, which is, again, a bit odd because normally he does that before the ring introductions. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he just forgot. It was like, oh, crap, I got to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't get paid the same amount if I don't say the words. (laughs) The commentators praise Paige's work ethic and his diamond cutter. But Savage gets on a microphone and says, it's not Paige's big day. It's his last day on planet Earth. Ooh, yeah. Is he going to load him a spaceship with the rocket fuel and send him into space? (laughs) Wrong person. Right mindset, though. It is. It is. Paige charges Savage, so Savage runs away. They end up brawling outside, and Paige counters a barricade slam with his own, but Macho accidentally kicks some poor kid's baseball cap off in the process. (laughs) Paige beats Savage up outside and inside the ring, lifts him high, and drops him knee-first in a cool-looking spot that might actually still have been a botch. I couldn't tell if that was what they were actually going for, or if hmm. Paige just, like, adjusted, having slipped up on something. Yeah, it's hard to say. Paige tries the diamond cutter, but Savage holds the ropes, and Paige lands hard. Savage snaps his neck across the ropes, and Paige spills outside. Savage follows and charges right past Kimberly, knocking Paige into the crowd, and they brawl through the crowd and fight with trash cans by an arena entrance. The commentators debate precisely what kind of cable Paige uses to choke Savage, and Dusty decides it's a cable cord. Oh, okay. Revelatory. Yes. Now, so this match is no DQ, but it's not no countdown, right? They kind of overlap most of the time, so I would assume Uh, so. But yeah, they never really specify that. Yeah. Back to ringside, and Savage hides behind Kimberly, and Elizabeth rakes Paige's back. Then Savage shoves Kimberly into Paige and decks him. Savage drops Paige rib first on the barricade, then top rope double axe handles him on the barricade. Ow. Mm-hmm. The crowd chants mightily for DDP, but Savage hurls him to the steps for about a 0.3 Cena. Yeah, it's not too strong. Then into another set for about 0.35 Cena. Yeah. Similar distance, but there's a better sound on that one. Oh, yeah, that's true. The echo, yeah. Savage rolls Paige in and pins him with his feet on the ropes for two and insists it was three, pointing Curtis to Elizabeth, who agrees, and asks Curtis where his glasses are. (laughs) I love that Savage totally expected that to work. Yeah, yeah. Savage goes out and steals a chair from Michael Buffer and smashes Paige with it, but Curtis throws the chair out. Savage goes back out, but Buffer's fellow announcer, Dave Penzer, won't leave his seat, so Savage slaps him hard to knock him down and takes it anyway. Yeah. Then stomps him. Savage throws the chair in as Buffer kneels to check on Penzer. It's a rare moment with the ring announcers directly involved in the match story there. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Savage back in, but Paige grabs the chair, tosses it to him, and dives at it to smash it into Savage's face. Both men are down, and they're up at five. They trade flurries of punches, and Savage hits a solid lariat. You can hear the thump noise. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sending Paige over a tea kettle, per Dusty. (laughs) <laughs> yes. It's the first time we've actually heard that in a while. <laughs> yeah. He gets two and a half. Savage chokes Paige and catches a Paige kick, but Paige hits his spinning lariat. Both are down again and up at eight. Savage repeatedly kicks and slams Paige as he keeps trying to get up. Savage goes outside, throws poor Penzer down again, <laughs> and gets the ring bell. But as he climbs up top, Kimberly steals it. Savage still dives at Paige 
but Paige gets his boots up and Savage is down. Savage counters a diamond cutter with a backslide attempt, but he can't lever Paige over, so he mule kicks him hard in the balls. Yes. It gets two and a half. Frustrated, Savage beats Curtis up, pile drives him, whips him with his own belt, and throws him out. He goes up top and hits the big elbow on Paige, going for the pin briefly before he realizes that he himself KO'd the referee. Oh yeah, that's what happened. (laughs) He signals to the entrance, and Nick Patrick runs down as Kevin Nash looks on approvingly. But Paige revives, floats over a savage slam, and hits the diamond cutter. Patrick looks thoughtful. Paige pins Savage, and after a moment's hesitation, Patrick counts three, giving Diamond Dallas Page the win. Patrick raises the exhausted Page's hand, but Kevin Nash runs down and grabs Patrick by the throat. Nash keeps hold of Patrick and checks on Savage, and much of the rest of the NWO comes down, with Bischoff at the head, and DiBiase, Six, Vincent, Bagwell, Norton, and the fake NWO sting behind. Six questions Bischoff about what's going on, and the NWO watches in confusion. Bischoff points at Patrick and the crowd chants, We want Sting, as Nash hits a monstrous jackknife powerbomb on Patrick. A revived Savage kicks DDP out of the ring and grabs Kimberly, but Bischoff grabs his hand to stop him from hitting her. Savage lets Kimberly go, but shoves Bischoff, and Bischoff shoves him back, so Savage slugs him and Nash and the other NWO members charge in to separate the two. Thoughts on this one? It was a really strong match. I thought they showed the real intense planning they put into this kind of thing, clearly with these two at the helm. Yeah. Every moment is sort of measured, like just the right amount. He stands on the top rope long enough to sort of set up the counter move that DDP has. In contrast to when he does the elbow, he does it much faster. They do little spots like when he's holding Paige's foot. It's just long enough for the crowd to sort of think, what's he going to do? And then when he does the counter, you go, oh, that's what he was going to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's still early enough in uh, Paige's career that you might not really have expected the spinning lariat at this point. Yes. I'm sure he's done it a few times, mm-hmm. but it's not a super well-established spot of a top-ranked performer yet. Yeah. I'm a little surprised they missed the chance to reference WrestleMania three with the whole ring bell thing. Yeah, true. Because, I mean... I know they shouldn't because it's a different company, but that they normally would, before. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, credit for Savage, too, his balance. Mm-hmm. He climbed to the rope. He's not thrown off by her pulling the thing out of his hands, and he balances up quite well on the Oh, yeah, wow. absolutely. He's always incredible with that. Yeah. He, he makes a really good heel here as well. Even if you were an NBO fan, the sort of, no pun intended, savagery of his offense mm-hmm. and the way he does things, the way he acts towards everyone around ringside, no matter how you feel, he's a, he is a bad guy. Yeah, and it helps that Paige is, as always, excellent at gathering sympathy. Mm-hmm. He does a just great job of showing how much he's being hurt, but still being alive enough that it's clear he might be able to turn it yeah. around. It's a tricky balance, and he usually pulls it off quite well. Yeah, he, once he hits face mode, it's really clear that he's able to do that. He knows exactly how much he needs to do to keep the crowd into it. I thought they did a really good job here. It was interesting how they briefly had the valets interact in the match, but then kind of mm-hmm. just, really, most part, forgot about them there. Yeah. Kimberly obviously plays a big part in taking the ring bell away, which in hindsight, actually, if he is holding the ring bell and paid counter, that would have really, really hurt. <laughs> yes. So he kicks the bell into his face. 
they probably thought about that one and then were just like, I'm not sure we can do that safely. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, totally. It would have made a great sound, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is meant to be Paige's big coming out party as the face that can possibly take out the NWO to be the top guy here. He delivered quite well. Savage, to his part, really played this crazy, arrogant heel that she wanted to see beaten. Mm-hmm. And even to the end, Paige didn't forget to sell. No. They really build up him pushing himself into the pinfall. Mm-hmm. And even his counter, the diamond cutter, wasn't super fast. Yeah. And he and at the end of the match, like he's lying there exhausted as much as Savage. Yeah. It's like, you know, he won the match, but he can't move, can't defend himself when the NWO comes down. Exactly. It took that much out of him, which is just mm-hmm. an example of again, Paige being an exceptional storyteller. Exactly. And also to his credit, Savage took the diamond cutter and stayed down for a oh long time. Oh my gosh, yeah. He super sells that. Yeah. You can tell Savage knew it was his job to make sure that DDP looked good yes. and was established as a main eventer after this match. And mm-hmm. he took that to heart and did everything he could for him. A thousand percent, yeah. Very generous performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is exactly as good as you would expect if I told you that Diamond Dallas Page and Randy Savage were going to have a match. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's properly epic as DDP's biggest match for this point. Page does an excellent job showing ferocity and power, but also feeling like a proper underdog against the vastly more experienced former world champion, Randy Savage. Yeah. It nicely mixes complex counter spots and well-planned choreography with just the right amount of brutality, using its no-DQ stipulation without being ruled by it. Yeah. There's enough changes in momentum to keep things interesting, while still building the story of the wily Savage wearing down the determined DDP, who just won't go down for good. Yeah. It's a great establishment of his never-say-die character that Mm -hmm. he's going to run with. Yeah. Savage's quick counters of the Diamond Cutter establish that he's watching for it closely, showing that it's a move to be feared, which makes it all the sweeter when he gets overconfident towards the end, drops his guard, and takes it. I just fear for WCW's budget with all the three-ring binders these guys probably went through (laughs) playing this match. Yeah. We we joked about this a while ago when we were first talking about uh, DDP's rise, mm-hmm. and just that when these two finally got to have a match together, it had to be like the sweetest moment for them. Like, yes. finally, finally, I'm working with a guy who gets it, who yeah. knows how to put this together. Exactly. I don't have to convince you to study the binder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Um, I do have to question. Like, it goes pretty quickly from just Page at the end, to the NWO coming in and going to the NWO angle. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that at all cheapens it, or or do you feel like the intensity of Paige's win and Savage selling the diamond cutter is enough to hmm. still leave that a strong impression, even though they go to the NWO story? Yeah, I could, I don't know, I could kind of see that. I mean, I think you still get the effect mm-hmm. of his win, because he sells it and Savage sells it. I think if yeah. Savage didn't sell it, that would, that would be the thing. If Savage was right up and yes. angry, then it would be different, but because he has to be slowly revived. Yeah. That was that was my feeling too. I think you still get the reminder as Savage is lying on the mat. Oh right, that's because Paige knocked him completely out. <laughs> yeah, the only problem you really have, and this is a recurring thing, is that you have this NBO as this group. We know we got to work together to stop them. But then like, okay, so I get not interfering in the match, but why aren't Luger and Giant out yeah, to yeah. take DDP out? That would have been one thing they could have done to reestablish DDP as well. Is have him get kicked out by Savage, but then, like you said, Luger and Giant, maybe even Harlem Heat, mm-hmm. run down and at least help him and Kimberly escape, and then you can have the NWO in dissension in the ring. Yeah. But 
I feel like the way they did it, it still worked. Yeah, it's a recurring thing where they're like, we got to fight the video together, and they never... Never actually do. Yeah. Thus, Heenan getting on them about, you, you need to have a leader, guys. Yeah, exactly. Come on. Exactly. The Deuce View would continue, however, the next match is actually at the Great American Bash. Okay. As we saw in Slamboree, they have an interview segment. Right. Which is entertaining and made my uh, top segment, I believe. I believe so, yeah. But it's not a match. It's kind of saying that they just sort of draw another match out so long. Maybe they thought it'd be more dramatic that way. Yeah. As far as Nick Patrick thing goes, this really wouldn't pay after a couple weeks later. He'd be gone for a couple weeks and appear in the April 21st Nitro. He would appear at the commentator's desk explaining that he regretted all his actions and wanted his job back. There would be a bit of a gap there where J.J. Dillon would be hesitant about eventually sort of make him an referee again and give him his chant, which would lead eventually into Starcade, of course. Right. The commentators are stunned by the turmoil in the NWO. Heenan recounts the chaos and sells the enormity of Page's win over Savage, seriously building it up. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that also helps with refocusing it back on Page. Yeah. It kind of gets away from him a little bit as the NWO comes in, but then the commentators bring it right back to Page. Mm-hmm. Tony reminds us that Luger's got an upcoming title match against Hogan, and he and Dusty talk up the cracks forming in the NWO, with Dusty gleefully taunting Hogan over the Discord. Heenan says that Hogan needs to get a bullwhip and chair to tame his pets. <laughs> nice. Tony says they'll expect to hear from the NWO on Nitro and signs off. During the credits, we get some excellent Western movie music that is clearly, clearly a ripoff of the Magnificent Seven theme. Yes. In a nice gesture, WCW also put Get Well Moses in their special thanks section. Oh, that's nice. It's actually really sweet, yeah. The credits finish up with an ad for Slamboree, and Spring Stampede 1997 is done. So, final thoughts on Spring Stampede 1997. Overall, that was a pretty good show. We had generally pretty strong matches throughout. The show has a real identity with the Western theme. Even as you point out in the beginning, it's somewhat of a clash with the look how serious and gritty and real this all is. But yeah, this is good matches throughout, uh, good performances. The year segments are not super lengthy, so they don't take away too much from the matches, I would think. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we get some big moments with Paige's victory being the highlight, and you have the eventual Luger title shot built off this. Yeah, it's a very consequential show, actually. Yeah. For, it's, it's an interesting one because, like, given the theme and everything, you could think of it as one of those transitional shows, mm-hmm. but it really, really matters for a lot of people. It does, yeah. Back when we did Slam 97, I thought that show was also enjoyable, but it, yeah, like I said at the time, it felt like a big-budget house show with some story implications. But yeah, this is, oh, that was a better balance of just a normal review and also having the stories going throughout. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was another brilliant show in this series. Spring Stampede 97 is filled with strong performances, with a mix of highly technical matches and brutal brawls, sometimes in the same match, Mm -hmm. and a number of important story moments that establish major transitions in the company's most significant angle, the NWO story, intermixed with some major attempts to push new stars, transition characters to new roles, and above all, push DDP to the stratosphere. This is the make-or-break moment for DDP, who has been rising in popularity over the course of the last year, but is getting his first shot at the main event and focal point of the show. And he nails it. Mm -hmm. 
The matches are not without their flaws, from the odd rules of the Four Corners match to Hall's no-show and the rebooking of the tag title match. Yeah. And there's some botches here and there, though quite minor ones in general. Overall, though, the matches rise above their flaws and are universally entertaining. Mm. Each has its own identity, and all are solid to great performances, without a real weak link to be found. Another really strong card for this series, and again, one with a really, really hot crowd. Yeah. Promo content tonight mixed the highest of highs and lowest of lows. Yeah. We got great work from Giant and Luger, and a solid, if slightly stumbly, DDP promo, and Flair enjoying building up his return. But we also got a non-promo that interrupted a great match, and a truly infamous flub from poor Booker T. Yeah, yeah. It's truly amazing that they were able to keep that segment going, and even got a good ending to it out of the man himself. Overall, I think promos did a great job building up the stories tonight, even if there's some really notable flaws in the mix. Sure. It won't surprise anyone to learn that I like the commentary, of course. Obviously. The Tony, Bobby, Dusty team works as well as ever, and even works quite nicely with the addition of Tanae and Marshall in the first and second matches, respectively. The team have their usual mix of strong discussions and fun-loving humor, and Dusty has some real winners of bonkers lines this time. (laughs) Yeah. Usually leading to great Heenan snark. I do feel like there are times the team lets themselves get sidetracked from telling current match stories in favor of the overall NWO story, though. In particular, in the Medusa Hokuto match. Yeah. Where they spend half the match talking about Scott Steiner. <laughs> time and place, guys. Time and place. Yeah, exactly. Still, it's hard not to have fun listening to these three. Aside from some audio glitches, production was a strong point on this one, most notably in the awesome set design, which is one of WCW's best ever. It is, yeah. You can absolutely tell the team was having a fun time with the show concept, and it really comes through in just how much detail they put into the entrance set, how well it works with the pyro, and how well they held the theme together with the graphics and music choices for the show. Minus a few points for the reappearance of the annoying split-screen feature, but otherwise excellent job. I adored this show, much like the previous Spring Stampede. We are two for two so far on wonderfully entertaining shows and easy recommendations. Mm-hmm. We'll see how long the streak lasts. Yes, hope. All right, it is time then for our match of the night and MVP. So, Al, your match of the night. Bunch of strong contenders here. As I said before, if it wasn't for all the outside stuff at the end that affected the finish, I would definitely be going with. Uh, Malenko Benoit thought they really know everything here. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the opener with Dragon and Mysterio is really good. Really good story. For me, I'm going with the one that was arguably the most important match in the show and got the best overall reaction throughout. Yeah. So I'm going with DDP versus Savage. Okay. Yep. Yeah, for me, this ended up actually between Dragon Mysterio and Paige Savage. Between the two, Dragon Mysterio is probably the better pure in-ring performance. Sure. Just for the innovation of their moves and everything. Oh, yeah, I understand. But I'm going to agree with you. It's Paige Savage tonight. It's also a really great match in and out of the ring, but it has this really, really strong storyline and reality of it being Paige's first chance to prove he belongs at the main event level, competing against the greatest in the sport. Paige has to prove himself tonight, and, excellently supported by Randy Savage, he very much does cementing himself as one of WCW's greatest performers and most popular figures for the remainder of the company's existence. This match just means something more, and I think it deserves recognition for that. Absolutely. MVP? Well, you know I'm tempted to give it to Public Enemy just because I love Public (laughs) Enemy, 
But no, I'm not doing that. For going above and beyond, not just being a bag of being completely insane at hitting so many little character things throughout, whether it's the promo backstage or taking chairs from the ringside people or the pile driver to the ref. I have to go Randy Savage. Yeah, he did a really, really good job. And like we pointed out earlier, a super generous performance to Paige oh, as yeah. well. I, I do, I really want to say DDP because he puts in a heck of a performance and proves once and for all that he deserves to be in the main event scene here. Mm-hmm. But uh-huh. this has to be the giant. Oh, okay. With an exceptional promo, a good match performance, and a massive character moment. That's true, yeah. The Giant stole the show tonight, even amid several other excellent performances. Long after we're done watching this series, the slow change in expression and the walk across the ring to tag Luger are what's going to actually stick with me off of this show. Okay, yeah. And that wraps up our review of Spring Stampede 1997. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Spring Stampede 1998. The biggest. The baddest. No bull. Sorry, Al. Bull Buchanan will not be showing up on that one, I guess. Aw. Do we just get bull from Night Court? (laughs) See, that would have been good, too. Yeah. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Sorry, one second. Should pick up. Hello, you're live on Let's Go to the Ring. Mm-hmm. Again, it's 1997. I assume that was your pager going off. <laughs>